Okay, well, welcome to Labrie, uh, and welcome to uh, my lecture. <clears throat> I'm calling this Understanding Jordan Peterson Part 2 because uh, I've already had one talk on Jordan Peterson, and what I did in that lecture was I looked at his ideas. Uh, when people were coming to Labrie, they kept asking, what do you think about Jordan Peterson? What do you think about Jordan Peterson? What do you think about Jordan Peterson? Yeah. And... Well, I started looking at his videos at that time. This was probably um, uh, in June of 2017 is when I started paying attention. Um, though I'd heard his name at, in late 2016, which is, uh, I'll give you a review of that later. But uh, it just was so controversial. He's such a controversial figure that I thought, you know what, I just, I'm going to do the peacemaker kind of thing, and I'm just going to look at his ideas and just present what he, um, how he thinks, and how does it line up with Christian theology, because he does use from the Bible a lot. Uh, and so what I did is I felt that I safely avoided all controversy, um, for the most part. I mean, there was people who said, like, oh, I don't like him, and some people say, I love him, after that talk, but they didn't feel like I really addressed that. Um, but, you know, Jordan Peterson himself, he's not a Christian, but he talks about the Bible a whole lot. And, and so that's where I wanted to say, does he square up with Christian theology, and how might Christians think about him? Well, I've decided that I can't avoid the controversy any longer. Uh... I got to plant my flag somewhere, I guess, but I'm still trying to be a peacemaker. Okay, um, uh, so I'm. I still. I just up, up front. I, I want you to know that I have lots of questions of Jordan Peterson, and there's things I like about Jordan Peterson. Uh, so, if you don't know anything about Jordan Peterson, I'm going to give you some clips. We're going to watch some YouTube clips early on, uh, but I really can't get into the the depth of his ideas. I'm just assuming that you have some of that uh, so that we can actually get to the, the more perhaps controversial issues. And so the first talk was really focused on theology and philosophy. This one's really trying to look at the political and the cultural, uh, looking at him in that way. Uh, so yeah, I basically decided I just want to ask uh, Oh yeah, can you go to the next slide? I'm gonna come over there in a minute, but can you just push forward? Uh, there's a picture of Jordan Peterson. Uh, uh, it, it makes him look like, you know, an icon with the halo around him. But you see at the top it says, clean your room, and at the bottom, sort yourself out. Or as he would say, sort yourself out, bucko. Um, but he, and you can see the things that he's holding. They're a Christian artifact, uh, an Orthodox cross with with the um, tapery. Is that what you would call it? Some gown is not right. Garb. Garb. Uh, but you can see that there's a lot of scientific elements and a lot of mystical elements around him. Uh, but this captures, and actually, um, uh, I'll show you a clip in a minute. There's a, uh, a CBC documentary that I would recommend you watch. You can only watch it in Canada. Uh, and it's called Shut Him Down. Um, and uh, it was done by a woman, Patricia Marcaccia or something like that. And uh, she was just interested in him as a psychologist. 
but uh, she started recording him and the whole, and she wanted to really kind of understand what was happening with his maps of meaning and why was there kind of interest around him. And then the whole thing blew up about his, um, his stance about the preferred pronouns. And so actually the documentary um, basically follows him for the first year and a half. And it really, and so she has an intimate view of how he's experiencing the phenomenon of him becoming famous. Uh, I'll show that um, in a minute. Uh, oh, but in the documentary, and that's why I brought it up, is that he receives a scroll with him looking very much like something like this. And his very classic Canadian reserve, he goes, don't know what I think about that. <laughs> uh, so he doesn't even know. Um, someone says, is he surprised by his fame? He said, surprise does not do it justice. It's incomprehensible to me. So he's really puzzled by his own fame. Um, so I really want to answer just two simple questions, questions that I asked myself and I went to go look the answers for, is how did Peterson become popular in the first place? And so that will be kind of introductory. Uh, first question. And the second question is how has he remained popular? I don't think the answers are identical. Um, the people, the reason people are interested in Peterson at the beginning is not why they stay with Peterson. Uh, they actually find something more interesting about him than maybe his, his stance on political issues. Um, but you will also see that they're not mutually exclusive answers. They are tied together. Um, so I hope to show that. Um, this is not to be exhaustive. I can't say everything about Peterson. If I miss anything, please just tell me. Uh, if I get something incorrect, please tell me. <clears throat> this is simply, I'm trying to contribute in order for us to have a good conversation. That's all I'm trying to do. This is not the final authoritative word on Peterson. I don't think that you would take it as that anyway. But I'm just, I, I just know there's so many other things to talk about about Peterson that I think will come up in the discussion and I hope that I can field well. But in trying to present this, it's, it's, it's uh, quite limited in a lot of areas. But uh, um, bring it up in discussion. And so, but I, hopefully you can refine my thoughts and hopefully refine some of your thoughts about Peterson as well. Um, if not, give him justice. Uh, so the <clears throat> Peterson was actually... He didn't have a cult following, but he was very popular as a teacher at Harvard. He was, he was a, not an assistant professor. He, was a, he wasn't a tenured professor. He was a professor trying to get a post at Harvard, but he was in Harvard seven years. But people started referring to him as uh, my guru, the best professor ever, um, greatest psychology professor. And so he almost had this kind of cult following early on. Um, he's a very charismatic speaker, if you've heard him speak. Uh, he ended up going to University of Toronto and got a post there, and now he has tenure. Well, um, he started having some things happen at, uh, uh, at the University of Toronto, and I'm going to play a little bit. He'll explain a little bit about that. But it got to a point where he felt that he could no longer abide. And, and part of that was uh, there was a discussion that they, um, 
before Bill C-16, which was a bill that included gender identity and gender expression as a part of the human rights um, uh, uh, to protect them, protection from hate speech, and not only that, uh, what Peterson would call compelled speech. Now there's debate on if that's what the bill actually does, um, but if you put it along with in Ontario Human Rights Code, uh, people say there actually is legislation that can come against you, and it leaves room for the possibility of severe consequences for not following or abiding by the law, being losing your post, or being jailed, or being seriously fined. If you do not, uh, if someone says, call me Zier, or call me they, um, and you don't want to call them that, then that can be punishable by law. That's how Peterson interprets this, this bill, and other people do too, but other people don't. They say that's, that's not yet exactly right. It's, it's possible, but that's not anywhere where we are. But that's where Peterson started becoming a bit alarmed. And so he made three quiet little videos. And I say quiet because they're quite modest if you see the videos he makes now. He's on the stage, he looks very nice. This, he's just like in his classroom or he's in his house. And uh, the first video was Professor Against Political Correctness. The second lecture is, uh, I can't remember the exact titles, but Professor Against um, or Questions Human Resource Center, which he'll talk about in the video that I'm going to show. And then, um, uh, and then the last one is How to Be Peaceful with PC Activists. Okay, so those were his th first three videos. As soon as that first video came out, there was a huge backlash. Okay, um, and let's see. <clears throat> So after the first video, um, there was a protest. Um, I can't remember exactly what the protest, but it was a protest against Peterson and, uh, and to say that transgender is a right um, and, and transgender people or non-binary people should not be oppressed. Uh, and so uh, this is the University of Toronto campus. And people carried signs, and you can see that uh, this transgender person has a sign that says, Dr. Peterson, we see you. Okay. And, and there were over uh, 200 uh, professors that signed a petition against Peterson that wanted his removal, or at least for him to desist, desist. And the University of Toronto wrote two letters to him to desist and take down his video and to recant what he had to say. Uh, and he refused. Now, if he got a third letter, he said then he would be under, um, he would be reprimanded and possibly lose. Now, some people feel that what Peterson was doing was being opportunistic. Opportunistic. They thought, oh, now he's just trying to make a name for himself. And you see how famous and popular he's become now. You might think, well, there's some credence to that. I disagree. I think that it was... Um, a very brave thing for him to want to speak up at this moment because there was, uh, he, he didn't know, and if you watch the documentary Shut Him Down, he actually didn't know what was going to happen. If there was going to be violence per per perpetuated against him or not. Um, and you'll see some of that in, in a second. But uh, I want to read just one quote uh, from the Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukinoff. I don't know how you pronounce his last name. Uh, the Coddling of the American Mind. 
and they just give you one story in 2015. Um, uh, and let me just read. It's, it's, he's a good writer, so you're not going to be lost, okay? A student named Olivia, whose parents immigrated from Mexico to California before she was born, wrote an essay in a student publication about her feelings of marginalization and exclusion. Olivia noted that Latinos were better represented on the blue-collar staff at CMC, that's Claremont McKenna College, and this is October 2015, okay? so just a year prior, uh, um, including janitors and gardeners, then among its administrative and professional staff, and she found this realization painful. She wrote that she felt like she had been admitted to fill a racial quota. She suggested that there is a standard or typical person at CMC and she is not it. Quoting her, our campus climate and institutional culture are primarily grounded in Western, white, cis-heteronormative upper to upper middle class values. Cis-heteronormative describes a society in which people assume that other people are not transgender and not gay unless there is information to the contrary. In response to this essay, which Olivia sent in an email to CMC staff, Mary Spellman, the Dean of Students at CMC, sent her a private email two days later. Here is the entire email. Olivia, thank you for writing and sharing this article with me. We have a lot to do as a college and community. Would you be willing to talk with me sometime about these issues? They are important to me and the Dean of Students staff, and we are working on how we can better serve students especially those who don't fit our CMC mold. I would love to talk to you more. Best, Dean Spellman. Um, what do you think about Dean Spellman's email? Cruel or kind? Olivia posted Spellman's email on her Facebook page after two weeks of receiving it with the comment, I just don't fit that wonderful CMC mold. Feel free to share. Her friends did share the email and the campus erupted in protest. There were marches, demonstrations, demands given to the president for mandatory diversity training, and demands that Spellman resign. Two students went on a hunger strike, vowing that they would not eat until Spellman was gone. In one scene, which you can watch on YouTube, students formed a circle and spent an hour airing their grievances through bullhorns against Spellman and other administrators who were in the circle to listen. <clears throat> Spellman apologized for her email being poorly worded and told the crowd that her intention was to affirm the feelings and experiences expressed in the article and to provide support. But the students did not accept her apology. At one point, a woman berated the dean to cheers from students for falling asleep during the proceedings, which the woman interpreted as an act of disrespect. But it is clear from the video of the confrontation that Spellman was not falling asleep. She was trying to hold back tears. The university did not fire Spellman, but neither did its leaders publicly express any support for her. Faced with escalating anger of students, amplified by social media and then by national news coverage, Spellman resigned. Okay. Uh, and then they also tell about another story where um, people came to their home. Um, this is a story about Erica Christakis, um, a lecturer at the Yale Child Study Center. And she basically was um, just wanted to school not to kind of oversee too much about what Halloween costume someone might wear. Uh, and when she said this, there was great amount of protests and that people came to her house and they started renouncing and asking her husband to renounce her, her wife's email. 
and they considered uh, them racist and offensive, stripping, stripping people of their humanity, creating an unsafe space and enabling violence. They, they swore and criticized for not listening or remembering students' names. Uh, that family ended up uh, both took a sabbatical from teaching for the rest of the year, and at the end of the school year, the pair resigned from their positions in the residential college. Erica later revealed that many professors were supportive privately, but were unwilling to defend or support the Christaxis publicly because they thought it was too risky and they feared retribution. So you hear that there's a lot of, yeah. Sorry, what was her original comment about Halloween? Um, yeah, okay. <clears throat> Uh, as this was happening, the previous incident, Spellman, another conflict over an email was unfolding at Yale. Uh, Erica, etc., the lecturer, um, wrote an email questioning whether it was appropriate for Yale administrators to give guidance to students about appropriate and inappropriate Halloween costumes, as the college dean's office had done. Christaskis praised their spirit of avoiding hurt and offense, but she worried that the growing tendency to cultivate vulnerability in students carries unacknowledged costs. She expressed concern about the institutional exercise of implied control over college students and invited the community to reflect on whether as adults they, should, they could set norms for themselves and handle disagreements interpersonally. Talk to each other, she wrote. Free speech and the ability to tolerate offense are the hallmarks of a free and open society. So that's what she technically wrote. Okay. Uh, and so they found offense. And so I find it very hard to believe that Peterson was opportunistic. Um, and even in the video that's following him, he goes, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. This could go badly um, with the rally after this. Um, at the same time, so right after he had this and this protest happened and then a, a, another uh, free rally speech, which I'll show you in just a minute, Donald Trump was elected in November 2016. So you see a populist winning victory in the U.S. over those promoting identity politics. Um, and so many began to consider Trump and Peterson of the same thread, of the same fabric. They both, and so they started saying that Peterson was a populist and that he had only pablum, like little children's cookies for, for people, rather than serious content. Um, uh, then Jordan Peterson, uh, uh, b before that, I'll... I'll show you a video of what he was experiencing. Well, let's hope this works. So um, he's visiting a guy named Jonathan Haidt, who I just quoted. And, uh, and so um, it's going to show you that what happens there. And then um, you're, going to hear, uh, you're going to hear some people at McMaster's chanting him down. Uh, pardon me for the language. Not my language, their language. Oops, for some reason, it's not showing. Let's see. This always works when you're not doing the lecture. Mm -hmm. Okay.
This is from a documentary called Shut Him Down. And that's him and his wife going to New York University before they go to McMaster's. That if you are not on the left in a grad program, and this is Jonathan Haidt. Constant little subtle, or not so subtle, reminders that you don't belong. And now suddenly, this is not just a faculty issue anymore. Between 2015 and 2017, the danger of speaking honestly about what you think about an academic or intellectual proposition has skyrocketed. The risk of being mobbed, ostracized, formally investigated has skyrocketed. Come on in, let me show you our bias reporting system. So in every bathroom, as far as I know, is the phone number, the email address, and the website where students can report professors or each other for bias incidents. What it means is that if I'm teaching a lecture class, let's say, and there are 300 students in the class, I have to teach to the most sensitive student. Right. Because if I say something, I used to always be provocative. I would like go close to hypotheses that would even be concerning and say, well, is this true? Right. Let's look at the evidence. Right. I don't dare do that anymore because if one student in the class is offended by my teaching techniques, they can call it in. Yeah, that's really cute. If you see something, say something. Yeah, right. So there's promotion of informing, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Pretty sad. So this is him going to McMaster University. He was invited by a student club to kind of talk about his ideas. again for offering support for the continued operation of my YouTube channel. We're in a chaotic time and you know I've got letters from people all over the world. Okay, he is more interesting than me, but we're going to keep on going, okay? We'll get back to we'll get back to some more YouTube clips in a minute. <clears throat> Actually quite soon. Uh, and so he was uh, invited, uh, actually just before the McMaster's event, that he was invited to um, a free speech rally, a guy named Jeffrey Liu, um, a University of Toronto student, 
felt that free speech was important and created a rally and invited Jordan Peterson. And that's when he didn't know what was going to happen. And he knew that he kind of got himself into something big. But instead of backing down, like you would imagine these other professors did or make an apology, he just doubled down. And he, uh, and actually, if you just hear a random clip from him, he's yelling at this thing. But that's because uh, some of the trans actors were blaring white noise and doing what they were doing the other one. And, uh, and finally, when he does speak, he's yelling uh, because probably he's worked up and also to be heard. Um, but, uh, and so this, as you can see, started skyrocketing how people started hearing about him. And then he talks to Joe Rogan uh, at the end. And so he, at this point, has had, you know, probably 300,000 followers. And he started getting personal uh, support through Patreon. Patreon. Uh, and it went from $300 a month to 10000 20000 40000 up to 80000 after the first year. So he was making $80,000 a month from patrons. And then he, um, and then, of course, his book came out. Uh, but here I'm going to uh, play a piece from Joe Rogan. Um, uh, now, the Joe Rogan experience, this guy is kind of a, a color commentary. So don't think Joe Rogan represents Jordan Peterson, though they do have uh, good conversations, or at least conversations that are colorful. Um, and so here he's explaining what was happening at the University of Toronto and why he decided not to back down. And then he kind of leads into some of his other thoughts uh, about why he stood up and why he thought this is the time to do it now. And you were, you were a, a social psychologist? No, 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 I'm not. I'm a clinical personality psychologist. And what is I, the difference? Well, one of the differences is that personality and, so, and clinical psychology isn't a corrupt enterprise, whereas social psychology fundamentally is. It's been going through an absolute internal revolution over the last two years because of all, because of its own discovery that many of its fundamental studies and propositions are flawed. I would say social psychology is the most um, social justice slash left-leaning part of psychology, and its methods are generally appalling. They're, they're not well-documented, and they produce all sorts of categories that don't exist. Whereas personality, I know it seems like it might seem like trivial distinction to people outside of the field, but th th these these disciplines are quite separate from a historical perspective. They develop quite separately. Personality psychologists are very very careful about defining what they measure, and so for example, I studied the big five personality traits. That's extroversion, neuroticism, agreeableness, conscientiousness, openness, um, and under openness falls intelligence. These are very well documented. We can really measure them. We can't measure them as well as we would like to. We've identified the biological basis for most of the traits, and we understand a fair bit about how they make people different. And, um, and, and personality psychologists have been very, very careful about measurement, whereas social psychologists are, as a general rule, very, very cavalier about their, about their uh, concepts, and that's led to a tremendous pollution, I would say, of the psychological literature. The implicit association test is a good example of that. That's the test that's being used to assess people's unconscious biases, unconscious racial biases. And so, for example, if, if I showed you a bunch of pictures of, of black people and a bunch of photographs of white people, and then I ask you to associate a good or a bad word with 
the black people or the white people to respond after you've seen the picture. If you are white and you saw white photos, you'd be faster at responding to the, to the positive words. And so they've used that as evidence of racism. But part of the problem with that is that you can't distinguish it from a novelty response. So, I mean, most people in a given racial group are far more familiar with members of their racial group. And the fact that they're more likely to associate negative things with racial groups that are outside of their racial group isn't something that can be easily distinguished from just a novelty effect. But they make wide-ranging claims about the inbuilt biases in people and also, and that's lent, and that's lent uh, impetus to these movements that are racing through corporations across the United States and governmental agencies where people are being subjected to mandatory unconscious racial bias retraining. And there's no evidence, by the way, that that works at all. In fact, the evidence that there is suggests quite the contrary. I saw this on one of your videos. Um, you, were, you were discussing how preposterous this is on one of your videos because one of the people that was opposing you was actually a part of something like this, right? Yeah, well, the human resources and equity people at the University of Toronto have made mandatory unconscious racism training, anti-bias training, and they made it mandatory for their staff. And I found that absolutely appalling. First of all, it's political, it's political re-education. So when you say but mandatory, like this is something that you had engaged no, in? No, I didn't have to, because I'm, I'm not part of the human resources staff. Okay. But the people that they're consulting with to implement these sorts of programs certainly have faculty and students in their sites. I mean, these are, these are trial runs for much broader uh, rolling out of exactly this sort of of exactly this sort of uh, re-education what, process. What's the methodology behind it, and how has this been? How's this been vetted? Oh, I don't think it's been vetted at all. The, like, if you're going to, let's say, you want to put in a in, into practice an educational process, what you need to do is you need to measure the initial state validly, so that your measure. So you need to use multiple measures, and all those measures need to say the same thing. So if you're going to accuse someone of racism, you need several different measures of racism, and then you have to show that across all the measures, it's like using different meters, all the meters should read the same thing. Then you have to implement your educational intervention, carefully defined. Then you have to do, you have to see afterwards if the consequence of the educational um, effort was a reduction in those initial uh, indices, those initial measures, that sort of thing when it's been done at all, has showed that educational interventions of that sort that are mandatory actually make racism and bias worse rather than better. But why let a few facts stop you? Because we already know from the postmodernists that there's no such thing as facts anyways. So there's... Look, in Canada, here, here's something. This is one of the things that really makes me proud of my country. <laughs> Our government has now announced that the judiciary in Canada will be selected. If you're going to be a candidate to be a judge, you have to produce a dossier that specifies your, your identities, whatever they happen to be, racial, ethnic, religious. And then you, the, the committee that's going to appoint you to the judiciary has to have undergone mandatory anti-racism and bias training before they're allowed to serve on the committee. So basically, we've set up a situation in Canada where our, the people who select their judges have to go a kind of indoctrination that has no validity from a scientific perspective before they're allowed to select our judges. Now, who's enforcing this? 
where did the this justice come minister, from? But where, where justice he, minister? Where did this program come from? Oh, right. there's all sorts of people who, who are who are offering these programs now, and so it's what become are, a growth industry. But what is their qualifications? That's a good question, right? None. Qualifications. <laughs> Zero. Yeah, huh? yeah, yeah. The, the eyebrows are raised. <laughs> yeah, well, there's there's no way of having qualifications right. for doing this sort of thing because it's not a valid procedure. So how does how people do they claim to be qualified? So know? they claim to be qualified. They come to the university and they say, I have a solution. The university yeah. says, finally, just run with it. And That's they just exactly implement right. it because to question anything that would absolve racism is racist. Yes, right. Yes, and they, they did that in collaboration with the Black Liberation Collective. Which Explain is, that one, because that, that one's adorable. The Black Liberation Collective, isn't that, isn't that the group that somehow thinks that white people are inferior because they don't have enough melanin? Yeah, it was started by a woman who, who said exactly that. She's a black supremacist, and she said that the reason that, the reason that white people are inferior is because they don't have enough melanin in their skin, and melanin apparently is this agent. It's, obviously, it's a pigment. But it's apparently this agent that transforms cosmic energy into wisdom. I mean, she's completely. You can make up. You can make up your own mind about her. And then the other person who started the Black Liberation Collective is a uh, woman who used to work for the University of Toronto Students Union, who is now being pursued by that students union for embezzling three hundred thousand dollars of. From, from from that organization with the help of a couple of her cronies. Well, why let a few facts stand in the way of abolishing racism? Yeah, well, they also they university. also are perfectly willing to promote violent means of social transformation. And the university claims that it's in favor of safety, you know, because they've gone after me because my refusal to use compelled pronouns has apparently made the campus unsafe. But they're perfectly re willing to take advice from the Black Liberation Collective. And not only are they willing to take advice from them, and not disavow them despite their support for um, violent means of, of social revolution. They're also pushing equality of outcome on their employees. And, and the people who taught their mandatory anti-racism and anti-bias training program said outright in their training material, which I have copies of, that any institution that doesn't have equality of outcome as, as part of its characteristic at every level of the power organization is corrupt and should be restructured. But that pales in comparison to my refusal to use compelled pronouns, I obviously. I don't understand how this gets so far. I just don't understand how no one has, there's, there's no rational thinking involved in the administration and the, and the people that are implementing these ideas. I just don't understand how it gets to the point well, where... Well, th things get to terrible places one tiny step at a time. You know, if I encroach, I, if I encroach on you and I'm sophisticated about it, I'm going to encroach two millimeters. I'm going to encroach right to the point where you start, start to protest. Then I'm going to stop. Then I'm going to wait. Then you're going to calm down. Then I'm going to encroach again right to the point where you protest. Then I'm going to stop. Then I'm going to wait. And I'm just going to do that forever. And before you know it, you're going to be back three miles from where you started. And you'll have done it one step at a time. And then you'll go, oh, how did I get here? And the answer was, well, I pushed you a little farther than you should have gone, and you agreed. And so then I pushed you a little farther than you should have gone again, and you agreed. And if anybody's interested in this sort of process, and this is a horrifying book, if you want to read about how this process works, you can read a book called Ordinary Men by Robert Browning. And Ordinary Men is about, Browning was interested in how the Nazis trained their, 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 they, how they trained people to kill, basically. and so. Robert Browning studied this police battalion. It's a very interesting book. So these were middle-aged German men. So they, they were 
they were raised and educated really before Hitler came to power, so they weren't indoctrinated Nazis, they were policemen. And when the Nazis went through Poland and then, and then needed to impose their brand of order on Poland, they brought policemen in. They brought this battalion of, of middle-aged policemen in. And uh, their commandant, their commander, was by all accounts a pretty decent guy. And he told them that because it was wartime, they were probably going to have to do some pretty terrible things, but that they could go home if they didn't think they were up to it. So there was no compulsion. You know, This wasn't a Milgram experiment or or an experiment where you had to obey orders. The guy who was giving the orders said, look, this is going to be awful, but you can back off. But the guys thought, well, I'm not going to leave my comrades here to do the dirty work, you know, which is kind of a virtue in a, in a perverse way. And then Browning details how they went from ordinary policemen to guys who were taking naked pregnant women out into the middle of fields and shooting them in the back of the head. And they were physically ill during most of the transformation process. You know, they started out by rounding up uh, the Jewish men between the ages of 16 and 65. Well, you know, you can kind of understand that because you're at war. And then, well, then they put them in stadiums. And then, well, then they had to shoot some of them. And then they had to load them on cattle cars. It was like one step at a time. These guys were having a dreadful time of it. They didn't stop. They didn't stop. And so that's how things get to where they are now, is that, I mean, I know they're not at that point, and I'm not trying to make the case that they're at that point. Well, you're one of the first people that's sounding an alarm, that there's, there's a real issue with controlling people. There's a real issue with controlling dialogue, controlling the way people communicate, and that these ideologies, although seemingly innocuous, they can take you down very dangerous roads. Yes, well, seemingly innocuous ideology, those words... Innocuous ideology, those words do not go together. There are no innocuous ideologies. And there, there are forms of pathological oversimplification. And there are also clubs. I mean, I mean, the kind of clubs that you hit people with as well as the clubs that you belong to. The advantage to me being an ideologue is that I can explain everything. I can feel morally superior. And I know who my enemies are. And you know what you're supposed to do with enemies. They're not your friends, right? You move against them. And, you know, we're approaching a situation, and this has already happened, I think, more in the United States than in Canada, although our countries are competing to see who can cross the idiot line fastest. You're, you're in a situation in the U.S. where 50% of your population won't talk to the other 50%. That's not good. And I would say it's more pronounced on the left liberal side because they regard everybody who voted for Trump as essentially as an enemy. It's like, hey, people, that's 50% of your citizens. You might think about talking with them. You know, uh, people you can't talk to, those are enemies. Well, ironically, I really truly believe that one of the big factors in Trump's rise to power is that people are sick of this oversimplification, this ridiculous ideology coming from the left. Like, that this yeah, enforcing of identity politics. Exactly. And so they've chosen an identity politics that opposes the identity politics that they think is disgusting. Yeah, and that's just starting. It's just that's starting. Yeah, that's it right. Just starting. That's right. Well, if you teach if you teach one side to play identity politics, de facto you teach the other side to play identity politics. And I've seen more and more people who are center people, as far as I'm concerned, push to the right yes. because of the continual insistence that by their mere existence they're part of the perpetrator group. Just by being a white person who is somehow or another successful, you are a privileged person. You're a part of the elite. You're part of the one percent. You're part of the problem. Yeah, you're part of the oppressors. 
Yeah. Absolutely. You're an and oppressor by being just a, just by a person being. with a, a home in the suburbs. Well, and it's also extremely annoying for people who've worked really hard and, and who've made the requisite sacrifices to become successful along some dimension to have that immediately attributed to their oppression. Yes. And it's not, it's not obvious that that's something we want to do. It's like for the social justice warrior types out there who, who might be listening, it's like, do you, are you really willing to say that every single person who's accomplished something has done that as a consequence of oppression? That, that's again what the Soviets claimed with regards to the, to the successful peasants in the 19, in the, just before the 1920s. It's like, <clears throat> so I know that there's a lot there, but um, it really lays out a lot of, um, uh, <clears throat> a lot of what he's saying. Oh, actually. <clears throat> And I wanted to play the longer clip one because you can kind of hear him, uh, what he's saying and how, he's, how he was thinking about it as he was making this decision. But also I think it was really important to kind of let it, the conversation play out because you heard that he was saying that he doesn't think just the left is playing identity politics. He thinks that the right are playing identity politics. But it, what happened is had the more the left push uh, identity politics, the more it creates the right to have identity politics. And he goes, and what you're having is no civic um, or public discourse. There's no civic discourse. And what's happening is that people are just seeing each other as enemies. And, it just, and he thinks that identity politics or ideologies um, really just create divided people and people who see their own fellow citizens as common enemies rather than uh, a common humanity or a common citizen. Well, that, that all happened in 2016. Um, and he was still very much a national figure. He became a national figure, but he was not an international figure, but still some people thought he was a crackpot. And they thought, well, he's overinflating the dangers on campuses. They didn't have the coddling of the American mind, what I was saying. It was just like, well, maybe he's overstating the case. Some people thought, yeah, maybe that's true. And is it just, is he just making a political stance? What really changed that was Lindsay Shepard. And Lindsay Shepard, uh, she was a teaching assistant um, in a communications course. And she was given, basically, she's, uh, she was teaching the class. Um, she had to kind of give some, uh, some idea of what she wanted to teach under her supervisor. But then she would teach the students, kind of a low-level class. And it was a class around communications and debate. And so she showed a clip from a Nash, uh, from a a Canadian TV show called The Agenda with Steve Pakin. And Jordan Peterson went on it, uh, along with some other, like, um, some trans uh, uh, activists and uh, some lawyers and whatnot, and they were all arguing about, the, uh, about Bill C-16 on should it become law or not. Uh, and it had just become law, uh, the bill that I mentioned earlier, well, then she found out that um, uh, she, got, she got an email saying that she needed to come to the supervisor's office um, for disciplinary actions. Uh, some, of this, some of you are very familiar with this story. But what happened is that she went into the office and she was very nervous. And the professor started saying about uh, how she basically brought Hitler into the classroom and that this was not up for debate. And she goes, well, this was precisely what it was. It's up for debate. And she, and she said that she was neutral. 
she wasn't uh, politically active, and, um, and she's a non-religious person. Born in Victoria, by the way. Um, but uh, I don't know where Wilfrid Laurier is, but I think it's out east. Um, Ontario. Southern Ontario. Southern Ontario. Well, she was getting reprimanded and saying, you know, um, this, this is, uh, they don't, I don't know what kind of reprimand, uh, reprimanding, reprimation. Reprimation, is that the right word? Anyway, you know what I'm saying. This is why I don't like to write, I like to talk. And so, <clears throat> anyway, uh, she secretly recorded the whole thing. And she, the next day, sent it to the National Post. And that was the first time people, particularly Canadians, heard from themselves what the administrators were saying to the students. And so everyone was like, oh, what Jordan Peterson said is correct. Like, and it actually made her much more sympathetic to Peterson. Um, than perhaps what she was. And so um, <clears throat> this, this gave him all the more sensation nationally. But uh, I'm sorry, but I don't understand what they said and what she was being reprimanded for. Well, because she showed the video of this, she showed clips from this like hour-long TV show about Jordan Peterson debating uh, Bill C-16, where gender identity and gender expression um, would be kind of codified as a part of human rights. And uh, she just showed a couple of clips, some from Peterson's side and some from other people's side. And so she was called in, and um, uh, they said that some people felt unsafe in the class. Because they were going against... Because they were, because they were bringing up to say, oh, prefer, um, gender, um, gender identity as a human rights is, um, is not up for debate. If you're putting it up for debate, then you're making someone question... That if someone is there that has um, that identifies as non-binary or trans or something like that, could feel very unsafe in that environment where they're arguing about your rights. Okay. And so they considered what she did is create an unsafe space. And she said, "I don't um, in the longer." And you can go online and hear all this stuff. But she said, "You know, I don't remember anyone getting angry. We had a good, vigorous discussion from both sides." Uh, she, she remained neutral through the whole argument, and she goes, I don't, no one ever came up to me, I didn't see anyone emotional, and they're like, and she goes, can you tell me who it was, and they're like, no, it's confidential, we received an email, uh, but it's confidential, and they're like, can you tell me how many people, they're like, no, I can't tell you how many people, just say it's one or more. Uh, well, then she sent this to the National Post, and so Wilford Laurier was like, uh, we'll have to do an independent study on seeing what happened. And what happened is that no one complained. Mm -hmm. But someone had heard that she had showed the video in the classroom. And so someone, if I, if I don't have this fact wrong, that someone from the Rainbow Collective heard about this and then said something that this is what this girl is doing, this young woman is doing. And, uh, and so that was how it got started. And Wilfrid Laurier apologized the, the teaching supervisor said that they shouldn't have called her in, didn't think about her safety, about how she felt. And so there was a big apology, but it was too late. It showed that there was evidence of something happening in the administration, exactly what Peterson was talking about on Joe Rogan. And people were like, ah, he's apocalyptic. It's not that bad. And then um, uh, Lindsay Shepard came. And so that gave a big push. Uh, and so things started coming out that made Peterson look more and more sane rather than just a crackpot. Um, this, this, this is a very famous video that made 
Jordan Peterson International. It was this section. Um, the students saw some of this the other day. This part they did not see. Um, but this is an interview by Kathy Newman on Channel 4 News in England. I believe it's part of the BBC. And so she was interviewing Peterson about his, uh, his stance on preferred pronouns and his, and his other stuff. Uh, this happened in January 2018. And so this is the point, and you're going to get to hear someone who Kathy is very sympathetic to the left and thinks that Jordan Peterson is wrong. And this is Jordan Peterson defending himself against her. And you'll, uh, and basically the interview has been going along and it gets builds up and builds up until this kind of moment, okay? Mm -hmm. Where she really wants to go after him. Um, and I might try to have to explain later, but you'll see. It's called a ha gotcha video. Let me move on to another debate that's been very controversial Oops, for me. Um, <laughs> it's a beautiful piece of art, but those are all gourds, by the way. It's gourds in the shape of a guitar, and it was uh, in a house that was run by uh, nuns, and uh, they really focused on beauty. Mexico. Not, you know, certainly not for centuries. Let me move on to another debate that's been very controversial for you. Um, and this is, you got in trouble for refusing to call trans men and women by their preferred personal pronouns. No, 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 that's not actually true. I got in trouble because I said I would not follow the compelled speech dictates of the federal and provincial government. I actually never got in trouble for not calling anyone anything. Right. That, that didn't happen. You wouldn't follow the change of law, which was designed not to outlaw discrimination. No, no. What no, well, that's your... what they said it was designed to do. Okay, you cited freedom of speech in that. Why should your right to freedom of speech trump a trans person's right not to be offended? Because in order to be able to think, you have to risk being offensive. I mean, look at the conversation we're having right now. You know, like you're certainly willing to risk offending me in the pursuit of truth. Why should you have the right to do that? It's been rather uncomfortable. Well, I'm, I'm very glad I put you in this book. <laughs> well, I'm I'm very my, well, I'm well, you get my point. You get my point. It's like you're, you're doing what you should do, which is digging a bit to see what the hell's going on. So and that you, is what you should do. But you're you exercising your freedom of speech to certainly risk offending me. And that's fine. I think more power to you as far as I'm concerned. So you haven't sat there and I'm just trying. I'm just trying to work that out. I mean, ha, gotcha. You have got me. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to work that time. through my head. Yeah, yeah. It took a while. It took a while. It did. It did. Yeah. It took a while. You have voluntarily, you have voluntarily come into the studio and agreed to be questioned. Mm -hmm. A trans person in your class has come to your class and said they want to be called. Mm, that's she. never happened. And I would call them she. So you would. So you've kind of changed your tune. No. No, I said that right from the beginning. What I said at the beginning was that I was not going to cede the linguistic territory to radical leftists, regardless of whether or not it was put in law. 
That's what I said. You and then the people who came after me said, well, you must be transphobic and you mistreat a student in your class. It's like, I never mistreated a student in my class. I'm not transphobic and that isn't what I said. Well, except you've also called trans campaigners authoritarian, haven't you? I mean, isn't that... Well, only in the broader context of my claims that radical leftist ideologues are uh, authoritarian, yes, which they are. You're saying someone who's trying to work out their gender identity, who may well have struggled with that, had quite a no tough time over the years. It, yeah. You're comparing them with, you know, Chairman Mao, who no, just the saw activists. the deaths of millions of people. Well, just even activists. if the activists, you know, they're trans people too, they have a right to say these things. Yeah, but they don't Isn't have a right to speak for their whole community. To compare them to Chairman Mao, you know, I could, Pinochet, Augusto Pinochet, I mean, that, you know, this is grossly insensitive. No, I didn't compare them to Pinochet. Well, I did compare them to He was an authoritarian. He's a right winger, though. I was comparing them to the left wing totalitarians. And okay. I do believe Mao, they are left wing totalitarians. Under Mao, millions of people died. Right. I mean, there's no comparison between That's... Mao and a trans activist, is there? Why not? Because trans activists aren't killing millions of people? The philosophy that's guiding their utterances is the same philosophy. The consequences <laughs> are. Not yet. You're saying that trans activists no. could lead to the deaths of millions of people. What no, I'm saying that the philosophy that drives their utterances is the same philosophy that already has driven us to the deaths of millions. Okay, tell us how that philosophy is in any way comparable. Sure, that's no problem. The first thing is, is that the philosophy presumes that group identity is paramount. Mm. That's the fundamental philosophy that drove the Soviet Union and Mao's China. And it's the fundamental philosophy of the left-wing activists. It's identity politics. It doesn't matter who you are as an individual. It matters who you are in terms of your group identity. You're just That's saying murderous so to provoke, aren't you? I mean, no, you are yeah. a provocateur. I never say You're like anything. the alt-right that you hate to be compared to. You um, want to stir things up. I'm only a provocateur insofar as when I say what I believe to be true, it's provocative. I don't provoke. Maybe for you humor. Don't set out now and then. I'm not interested in provoking. But what My about beliefs? the thing about, you know fighting and the lobster. Tell us about the lobster. <laughs> well, that's quite a segue. Well, the first chapter I have in my book is called Stand Up Straight With Your Shoulders Back. And it's an injunction to be combative, um, not least to further your career, let's say, but also to adopt a stance of ready engagement with the world and to reflect that in your posture. And the reason that I write about lobsters is because there's this idea that hierarchical structures are a sociological construct of the Western patriarchy. And that is so untrue that it's almost unbelievable. And I use the lobster as an example, because the lobster, we, we div divulged from lobsters in evolutionary history about 350 million years ago, common ancestor. And lobsters exist in hierarchies, and they have a nervous system attuned to the hierarchy. And that nervous system runs on serotonin, just like our nervous systems do. And the nervous system of the lobster and of the human being is so similar that antidepressants work on lobsters. And it's part of my attempt to demonstrate that the idea of hierarchy has absolutely nothing to do with sociocultural construction, which it doesn't. Let me just get this straight. You're saying that we should organize our societies along the lines of the lobsters. I'm saying that it's inevitable that there will be continuity in the way that animals and human beings organize it organize their structures. It's, it's it absolutely inevitable. And there is one third of a billion years of evolutionary history behind that. Right? That's, that's so long that a third of a billion years ago, there weren't even trees 
It's a long time. You have a mechanism in your brain that runs on serotonin that's similar to the lobster mechanism that tracks your status. And the higher your status, the better your emotions are regulated. His famous lobster thesis. <laughs> I'm not going to play any more clips, but I'm just going to mark on this. Okay, so um, I wanted to play quite a few videos just so you can hear him. And I tried to, because there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of him talking. And it seems like every video clip is two hours, two and a half hours. So it's quite hard to find the little clips. So I should be applauded for just finding those little <laughs> clips. Yeah, yeah, compelled clapping. Uh, two weeks after his interview with Kathy Newman, he released 12 Rules of, for Life. Okay? Um, it showed you author of this book, but the book hadn't come out yet. And, and that's what catapulted him in, into international stardom. But what people did is that when they went to go open the book on 12 Rules for Life, because they had hear, heard a lot about him talking about compelled speech, about preferred pronouns, they opened the book and they find har hardly anything, almost nothing, about gender pronouns. Uh, he talks about evolutionary theory. He talks about psychology. He talks about lobsters. He talks about um, biblical wisdom. And he talks about self-help rules. Um, if you want to know kind of more about that book, then you have to listen to my other talk about what he says. I'm not, I can't re-go over it now. Uh, and when I first lectured on Jordan Peterson, he was quite popular locally, but then he has now become an international. And so when I recently lectured on Jordan Peterson at Swiss Labrie in April, all the people from the branches from around the world knew who he was very well. And they said that in Brazil, this is a, this is a big conversation on who Jordan Peterson is. Um, um, Korea, um, England, Europe, uh, Holland, and it's just a hot topic. Uh, and so wherever he goes now, now he has people who are very interested, but there's also protesters. Um, but he has a huge following, and with that money, he's now stopped teaching for now, as far as I know, at least temporarily. He stopped his clinical practice because he couldn't keep up with it. And he put a lot of money behind doing a biblical series. And so he basically rented out this uh, conference place on a Tuesday night, and invited people to come and hear him. And people crowded in and started listening in. So he has a two and a half hour lecture on the Bible. And he has four million views. So, um, so he's, he's become something quite big from that, that University of Toronto psychology professor who just took a stand, who has now millions of people watching him and listening to him, buying his books. But he's not a Christian. But he's not a Christian. And, uh, and I've heard more and more of him talking about who, who God is, and it's much more of an abstraction. He doesn't believe in uh, a personal God, or at least uh, maybe he would have room for that at some point, but he doesn't really have much room for that. He believes that the Bible is a sociological phenomenon uh, rather than a divine revelation. Um, and, and he often will, uh, his, 
if you talk to anybody that, that people who um, he talks about life as suffering and taking personal responsibility for your life. So he ha sounds very much like a psychologist, okay? But a psychologist that has all this else going on. Okay, so now I want to answer the second question. Sadly, sadly, there's no videos for this one. You're just going to have to hear me. And, uh, uh, and I'll go back. Don't, don't cut yourself short. I won't. It's I never not, do. It's not sad. <laughs> I'm not cutting myself <laughs> So here's a picture of all these people who have come to hear Peterson speak. You can see how many men are in the audience. Okay, but this is still particularly early on. Um, okay, so how, my second question, the first question, how did Jordan Peterson become popular? I gave you that. How has Jordan Peterson remained and has become increasingly popular? So let me ask this question. Is Jordan Peterson simply um, an apocalyptic preacher um, um, or represents something apocalyptic in culture because he's trying to make... Sorry, let me start that over. Is Peterson simply apocalyptic because he's trying to take back the power lost to him as a white male? Or is Jordan Peterson a canary in the mine shaft who has seen the beginnings of totalitarian ideology at work in society? So those are the two questions I'm asking. One, is he just a white man trying to get power back um, for other white men, or just men in general? Or is he a canary in the mine shaft? Do you know about that metaphor? Mm -hmm. A canary, they, the miners would take a canary into the mines, and if they looked over and they saw the canary had collapsed, that means there was too much sulfur um, or something more. Carbon dioxide in monoxide. Yeah. Thank you. Carbon monoxide in the shafts, and they would see that um, uh, the canary was dead. And so usually the canary tells you that there's a problem coming, and so you need to flee before it starts. Yeah, I like to give visual images on canaries dying. Um, so is he the canary in the mine shaft, or is he a, a, a raging white man trying to get power back? And how you answer this question informs how you are predisposed to interpret his popularity. Okay. Um, I, I, I was thinking about it. I think it's like the mirror of Gladriel. So in the Lord of the Rings, uh, Gladriel is this elfin queen. Uh, I can't remember Lothlorien. I don't know. Any Tolkien nerds here <laughs> can help me out. <laughs> I'm doing all right. And so uh, Frodo and Sam um, kind of go into this kind of enclosed where Gladriel is in the middle of the night. And, uh, and there's a pool of water. And in that pool of water, Frodo is invited to look. And he's invited to look, and what he sees are horrific things going to happen. Uh, he sees him kind of taken and all these bad things that are in his future. Um, they've had some close calls, but nothing so horrific as this. And, uh, and then Sam looks into the mirror, and he sees frightening things. And they ask, is this what is to come? And she said, basically, I can't remember exact quotes, but basically, this is a world that may or may not yet come to be. 
And so you're putting a projection on the future. Uh, now, some people will say that Jordan Peterson is a Rorschach test, that you basically see what you want to see. Uh, you know, the Rorschach test is the ink blots. The psychologist shows you the ink blot, and you say, uh, that's, that's a dad. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to write that down and psychologize you, basically. Um, so some people say, whoever you see Jordan Peterson uh, is basically an indicative of yourself. Not necessarily of Jordan Peterson. They think that his words are so ambiguous, his thought is so rambling, that you just kind of see who you want to see. I think it's more like the mirror of Gladriel, is that you, you see what you think where society is going. You interpret him in light of where do you think society is going. Is it, is, it, is, it going, is it going in a progressive manner, or is it going against uh, progressive ideals? Okay. okay, so the first one is, I'm going to say one popular theory. There's, I'm going to give two theories uh, that are very popular. Well, not popular, not yet. The second one is mine. The first one is quite popular. Uh, the other ones, but there's not a lot of people who I feel really tackling why is Peterson popular. Um, I think they try to touch one thing, but I have my theory. But here's one popular theory that is often coming from the left. Uh, and it says that confused young men in times of major cultural changes flock to Peterson because this intellectual cowboy, this white man speaking in 1950s vernacular, he likes to say bloody hell and bucko, gives assurance to men of their place in history by promoting biological hierarchies or evolutionary hierarchies. In addition, Peterson lays out common sense platitudes with the backing of religious stories and archetypal myths. So, in short, tradition and evolution tell us that we should be grateful for the society we live in. Okay. We should be very grateful of where we've come. Of course young men will flock to this, the theory goes. Yet this theory interprets Peterson at worst as a dangerous figure whose pseudoscience, like his lobster, which we can might critique, but um, as a dangerous figure whose pseudoscience can be used for white supremacy and toxic masculinity. He does this so um, he does this uh, so that for all male interactions have an underlying. Oh, he says that all interactions that males have have an underlying um, uh, underlying threat of violent, physical violence. Okay, and uh, now at best, this theory sees Jordan Peterson as a father figure to lost men, but misguided to harken back to society that was never. That never was. Uh, they imagine him wanting to go back to a society like the 1950s, where men were men and women were women. He sees all the world through apocalyptic lens, where postmodern neo-Marxists, his his phrase, where postmodern neo-Marxists are trying to wreck Western civilization, one that was hard won. His popularity does not speak well of his intellect or his system of thought, but speaks badly of our own times. Men, particularly white men, are having a hard time dealing with all the losses in society. Men are now experiencing a loss of power, and that is difficult for anyone. People do not like losing their place of privilege. Of course, a white man would interpret these social changes as scary rather than progressive. Young men 
who have an almost implicit privilege are now having to face that they must share power amongst others. So the young men don't want to share power with others. And so, so, come along, uh, so comes along Jordan Peterson and his message that we shouldn't make radical changes to society and that we should, in fact, be thankful for patriarchy. Now, that is something that Peterson does say uh, in an interview uh, with uh, Helen Lewis of G um, GQ. Uh, I would encourage you to watch the first hour of that video. It gets painful after that. You might think it's painful after five minutes. But it's very interesting because Helen Lewis is uh, left and like Kathy Newman, but she's trying to do better than Kathy Newman. Okay? Um, it doesn't always go well. <laughs> they get into quite some <laughs> angry, uh, uh, or he becomes very frustrated. Um, but she was, she was also trying to push back on the gender pay gap, which is what Kathy Newman was talking about. Um, he's saying, so... He is saying that we are ungrateful if we look at the society we have, where we have, for the most part, access to water, food, luxury items. We have the ability to vote. We aren't trying to eke out an existence that our Paleolithic ancestors had to do. Yes, there are evolutionary reasons men had to play one role and women another, but we shouldn't be resentful of that. We may look at history and see that there were several injustices like tribal warfare and stuff like that. So he does see that there was a lot of social injustices throughout history. But we have come so, so far as a species. We shouldn't be complaining so loudly about a 9% gender pay gap. The system we have in place is large, in large part just and fair, where women can be CEOs and women can make a lot of money um, and we must be careful not to reduce the gender pay gap problem as merely a sexist thing. That type of reductionism is not scientific but ideological, says Peterson. And for us to make shortcut changes to it may do us more damage than good in the long run. So it's interesting what you might think of his ideas of patriarchy there. Um, I'm trying to defend him, but this is why people say that. And so I'll leave it there. However, does this theory fully explain for Peterson's sustained popularity? While I think that there are some merits to criticizing Peterson and thinking that he has some questionable statements, uh, it leaves me with doubts, uh, this theory, that he's a white supremacist or promoting or perpetuating toxic masculinity. While there is a fear that Peterson's message in, um, um, while there is a fear that Peterson's message encourages white supremacy and toxic masculinity, does it? If one does a close reading of Peterson, one will not see a hint of white supremacy. That's my opinion. Nothing in 12 Rules for Life. In one lecture called White Privilege, the, lie, the Marxist Lie, he does say that white privilege is a lie perpetuated by postmodernist neo-Marxists. However, in that two-hour lecture... He nowhere says that whiteness is what one should aim for or that somehow whiteness is biologically superior. His main emphasis is that there, that ideology wants to destroy all hierarchies that are against bio, um, bi, something biological or evolutionary. And so his, his whole criticism is really just about neo-Marxism rather than making a case for white privilege, you see. You might think it's just clickbait.
perhaps. Furthermore, Peterson himself disavows of the alt-right, which you heard of him earlier do that, um, which he considers um, a group that plays identity politics based on ethno-nationalism. Um, in one protest, a person asked what he thought of the Nazi presence at his protest, or at his rally. And he says, I don't like Nazis. He believes that identity politics can be played by the left or by the right, and he thinks that identity politics played by the left encourages identity politics on the right. Um, and he also said at several points that several young men have actually left the alt-right and become more centered because of his lectures. Um, also, while you do see many young men coming to his talks, no one reports of a worked-up group like you might see in the movie Fight Club or uh, American History X. The young men who have been most influenced and transformed by Peterson's message are young men who are now cleaning up their rooms, getting jobs, and taking responsibility for others. It seems to me that this theory attempts to reduce the phenomenon around Peterson only in terms of power. So I think it's, this theory is a reductionistic one. Many who are deeply immersed in leftist ideology find it difficult to parse Peterson away from identity politics, and it's difficult to understand, it seems from what I've read, why people are motivated, it, they have a hard time trying to figure out why people are in sincerity toward Peterson without kind of getting riled up into movements of toxic masculinity. Now, I'm not a person who really loves to like scour Reddit, and I'm sure there are some people who, um, there are some young men who get pushed in that direction, but apparently that was happening earlier on, but the more they listened to Peterson, the more they moved away from extremism. They, they, they came into the center. They find Peterson a centrist. In fact, many who criticize Peterson scoff at his appearance um, of a bygone era and a vernacular and make the most of his aesthetics, but never really contend with the content of his complaint or even his message. When they do take his overall project more seriously, they pick away at his terminology, which is problematic, such as postmodern neo-Marxism. <clears throat> so here I have a picture of um, someone named Natalie Wynn, um, better known as a YouTuber called ContraPoints a transgender person, um, and feels that shows um, in uh, her video, that's what she goes by, her, is that, that it's logically inconsistent to say postmodern neo-Marxism, because postmodernism is anti-grand narrative, where neo-Marxism is a grand narrative. Okay. Marxism, uh, and what I mean by grand narrative, postmodernism is a, a distrust of, of big stories, that say, oh, this is the meaning of history. Because as soon as you say this is the meaning of history, then uh, uh, it has a way of, of um, marginalizing other stories. And they're saying there is no overarching narrative. Uh, and so it can lead to relativism. Uh, and so uh, values are, in a sense, up for grabs, uh, and it tries to uh, and postmodernism tries to remove any kind of binaries. Okay? It favors trying to remove binaries. There is no binary. 
where neo-Marxism, uh, Marxism is the idea, this is a very crude way of explaining it. Marxism is trying to have an equal redistribution of labor and, and wealth and, or income, where neo-Marxism is understood as trying to redistribute power, to try to have an equal redistribution of power. Um, and and I, I've had to be corrected, and, and if you know this better than I do, but what I understand is what he's trying to address is critical theory rather than necessarily neo-Marxism. If that's over your head, it's kind of over my head too. Okay. But, but I think what Peterson is trying to get at um, is that, this, that values are up for grabs, but only certain values are up for grabs. Okay. Uh, and so I think that's why he combines the two. But people will nitpick um, validly. It's a valid criticism. Um, and this is what ContraPoints does. Um, and what ContraPoints also does, um, uh, what uh, Natalie, I believe, did I say that? Um, yeah, Natalie says that, you know, Peterson is saying that the um, that postmodern neo-Marxists are just against the West, and and that this left leftist ideology is this unified attempt to try to destroy society. And ContraPoints is saying, well, no, actually the left is very divided. There is no unified left, and neo-Marxists are actually quite angry about social justice warriors, and social justice warriors are angry about neo-Marxists, and so they're arguing with each other. Uh, if you want kind of an entertaining, provocative, and quietly uh, a bit sexual uh, critique of Peterson, you can watch uh, her YouTube. Um, it's quite interesting. And you see that the left is not a unified category. You see it quite divided, which became evident, I think, among the Democrats when, once Trump was elected. And now you see the Democrats quite divided amongst itself right now. Nevertheless, I feel that this valid critique of Peter Peterson misses the forest for the trees. In fact, I believe that this misrepresentation or misunderstanding has simply given Peterson all the more influence. As, as with the event at Wilfrid Laurier and the interview with Kathy Newman, this leftist response has fortified Peterson's appeal. Peterson himself responds to this by saying to Joe Rogan that he has learned how to monetize social justice warriors which is a very kind of incendiary thing to say. Mm -hmm. um, but what he's saying is that the more the left pushes against me, the more people see that I'm making sense, is what he's trying to say. And I'm book selling books, and people are going to my YouTube, because they, they find that once they start listening to me, that I'm actually making quite a bit of sense. And so I think that's what he means by monetizing social justice warriors. So now there's questions I do have about Peterson, and um, there are some proper criticism that this theory makes, but overall I think it's insufficient to explain the phenomenon around Peterson. So now I want to talk about my personal theory. Oh, um, this is an article uh, by Zach Beauchamp from Vox that uh, it just gives you an example of how they write against Peterson. Uh, this was a seminal moment in Peterson's brand. Um, uh, talking about, uh, uh, I think it was Kathy Newman, I have to double check. It was proof that taking combative stances on camera, oh no, this was the rally at University of Toronto. 
It was proof that taking combative stances on camera, especially arguments where you're set up to win, like a calm professor confronted by angry students, you get, um, would get you huge numbers of fans. There are now innumerable videos of Peterson arguing with various liberals and leftists on YouTube with titles like, Leftist host snaps at Jordan Peterson, instantly regrets it. <laughs> you know, just like clickbait, right? They have millions of views and have led to a massive surge in, in donations to Peterson's personal account on the crowdfunding site Patreon. He currently earns around 80000 per month from Patreon donations. This was uh, last year. Peterson's <coughs> stellar academic credentials act as a sort of legitimizing device, a way of setting up his authority on politics and making his denunciations of quote-unquote leftist ideologues, more credible and attractive to his fans. Combine his undeniable talents as a public speaker and debater with his ability to use YouTube to reach audiences around the world, and you get a right-wing celebrity who has transcended Canada and become a global reactionary star. And there's lots and lots and lots of articles that say just this. Okay. <clears throat> Uh, my theory, and then some concluding reflections. Uh, this, I want to start by saying this is not the first time a speaker has had massive followings of young men. Uh, first of all, I don't know why that is particularly a problem. I mean, it's a problem if you're trying to encourage toxic masculinity, but just because you have a big following of young men doesn't necessarily make it bad. Yeah. I think I know what the phrase means, but I keep hearing... Toxic masculinity? Uh, uh, as I understand it, toxic masculinity is um, how you might think of how um, women, uh, men kind of yelling at, wi uh, at their wives or yelling at girls or taking advantage and treating as sexual objects like catcalling and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, and just also a, a, a culture of physical violence and hatred, uh, you know, you think of uh, whenever you see, like, young jihadist or young fundamentalist groups, you see, um, you see a lot of young men join in. And so I think that that's what's being pointed at as the underlying thing of encouraging toxic masculinity. And so the question is, is Peterson encouraging toxic masculinity? And I have to say, in fairness, uh, there are several, even ContraPoints, uh, who dislikes Peterson, says, you know what, if these young men <coughs> need a dad and they just, or need an uncle that gives them common sense wisdom, I'm all the way for it. Uh, but they, they fear that maybe his conclusions can lead to more than just that. <clears throat> so I'm glad you asked that. But I do want to say this is not the first time a speaker has had a massive following of young men, even young white men. I think recently of the new atheists, such as Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, and Sam Harris, the four horsemen. They saw science as king and matter as ultimate. And this is important for how I understand Peterson. As Dawkins famously wrote, The God Delusion. The new atheists often saw religion not only as foolish, but also as dangerous. It was living in fairy tales. Rather, people need to have the courage to see what is, is all there is. Um, we need to face that the world was not built with purpose or design, and that we must make do with what we can through the outworking of scientific development. Science could show that love, romance, trust, and happiness 
were simply evolutionary illusions, illusions uh, to help us push forward in our survival. They're not real things, but they're illusions that there are coping mechanisms that helped us survive. However, as society has begun to be thrown into confusion, particularly the political atmosphere in um, our countries, these writers had little to offer on the ills of society or, or the um, personal pains that people were experiencing. In fact, some could see that the new atheists were exacerbating despair. In response to this, a few newer new atheists looked for a softer response. Uh, and this is something that I've been quite familiar and interested in. Sean Kelly and Hubert Dreyfus wrote All Things Shining. Uh, there are two atheists where they argued that we must look to collective experiences, um, as one might find in sports or in politics, and to small personal rituals to contend with the fragmentation we see in society, um, the loneliness, and with the nihilism. Alain de Baton, in his book, Religion for Atheists, suggested that while a belief in God is ridiculous, religion could be useful as a tool. He suggested that we, um, that we look to religious practices in order to bring meaningful lives, um, or to bring meaning to lives, and to help society secularize better. So Alain de Baton was saying, uh, we need to look to religious practices to help us have a better society, not because God exists, but because these rituals are useful. Religious practice can help reshape how we travel, how we visit museums, how we look at art, how we congregate, how we worship, and on and on. And these are helpful ways. And this is, and Alan, um, because of Alain de Baton, there was the rise of atheist churches and secular churches. Uh, and I talk about this in another lecture. Yet these types of responses, while still popular, even now, still seem to give very little way forward. For people. It is in this context I see Peterson enter. Um, it might be interesting that he talks a lot about the Bible and that I see him kind of entering into the stream of the new atheists, okay? um, a, a continuity from them. His entire project is the synthesis of the sciences and religion. Uh, he said that the relationship between religion and science, because he grew up in a Christian family, um, and the thing that perplexed him all the whole, his whole life was the relation between science and religion. And he couldn't put them together. He was trying to figure out a synthesis. And after 40 years, he was finally able to start seeing that. Um, and what helped him was uh, archetypal myths um, or these archetypes. So what he does is he sees scientific truth as facts and religious truth as values. And he sees that both are true but in their own way. Um, and he sees that they're not mutually exclusive. In fact, they're mutually informing. Um, he sees that religion arose from our becoming conscious, okay. self-aware animals. Not only does he work out the relationship between religion and science, but he continually attempts to integrate them into all levels of being. This is why when one picks up 12 rules for life and finds uh, you're going to hear such rules as uh, stand up straight with your shoulders back, treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping, make friends with people who want the best for you, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today, and on and on. And so you th it sounds very much like a self-help book. 
But when you open each chapter, you start reading, it doesn't sound like a psychology book. It's a whole complex of psychology, religion, politics, science, and more. Uh, note that this is where his political views against quote-unquote postmodern neo-Marxism even come into play. But it somehow makes sense in his self-help book. It is because he believes social constructionists are anti-evolution. He thinks social constructionists are anti-science. They're the real players of the pseudoscience, as you heard when he was talking about the, the unconscious racial bias um, and how that was determined. He believes that these quote-unquote radical ideologues overlook the fact that our societies are organized on principles that took millions and millions of years in the making. Uh, so hierarchies, he says, are not social constructions but biologically evident. Um, this is also why he believes that ideology is at work, because certain people are, taking are not taking reality into account, but trying to force society into certain ideals of equity and trying to do it quickly. Um, he believes that instead, if these changes are to come, they should come through incremental changes, through civic dialogue, um, and do it slowly uh, and through personal responsibility. He thinks the key to social transformation is the individual responsibility, not major social change. Uh, and so uh, basically he sees that society as it's developed, as I tried to explain about patriarchy, is that evolution has slowly unfolded and that we have this very complex ecosystem and now we're just run, running ramshod over it by trying to just put our ideals on society, rather than listening and looking at science, what does science say? So, when one looks at each rule, one finds, as the hippies would say, that it all connects. This, I believe, is the main reason for his appeal, that he has a system that is largely integrated from the smallest detail, clean your room, and tying that small practical detail, clean your room, and tying it to meaningful existence um, that is metaphysical and millions of years old. So when you think of cleaning a room, it's not just clean your room, you'll feel better about yourself. Peterson's saying, no, this whole history of evolution and this dynamism that we now have this opportunity to clean our room. And so he's tying this practical advice to all things political, social, and scientific uh, and religious. His ideas are not just for men, but one can see how there is a particular appeal for young men. It's a meaning system that does not blame them, as critical theory does, down with all old white men, and does not necessarily exclude others. Peterson himself is not calling against, um, is not against calling a trans person by their preferred pronouns, which I hope you caught. Um, he also has personal political views that many on the left would favor such as socialized health care or gay marriage. He simply wants to see the science before he is persuaded. Many Christian men have left the church more recently, because you may not know, but a lot of young men are actually coming back into the churches, into Christianity, through Peterson's work. Which is interesting, because his two heroes are Nietzsche and Carl Jung, who were not sympathetic to Christianity. Um, but Peterson's more sympathetic to Christianity than they were, but people are re-examining the claims of Christianity um, because of his teaching on the Bible. 
they see it as, um, he sees it as a resource of, uh, so when he looks at the Bible, he believes that these are coded stories that reveal to us our evolutionary development, particularly the evolutionary development of our psyche or of our consciousness. And so people say, oh, well, maybe the Bible has something to say for me, especially if it's going to tie me to practical advice like clean my room or stand up straight, take personal responsibility. And, uh, uh, but anyway, many Christian men have left the church more recently because there has been insufficient attention paid to science, in my opinion. Uh, I've seen lots of people who come through Labrie who really um, feel that Christian pastors don't pay attention to scientific debates or um, scientific uh, discoveries. So many churches either avoid the topic or um, speak in defiance of science. I've seen many young men who have passed through here who felt that the church was more emotional and more sentimental and less fact-driven. Yet when they began to listen to Peterson, they found that there was an integrated system that gave space to both religion and science. Okay, so um, that's my theory on why people like Peterson. So concluding reflections, how might we think about the phenomenon as Christians? And I just have a few points. Uh, so I've already discussed Peterson's worldview and explained how he differs from Christian theology. But here I want to address more specifically how to think about the phenomenon around him, more particularly. So one, I'm very thankful that he has opened the conversation. For that, I'm grateful, and I believe that Christians should be grateful that Peterson had the courage to take a stand when he did. He had to face a great amount of vitriol and at great risk. He could at any moment decide that it was too much for him. However, he acted out of his deep convictions, and his deep convictions were for society at large. Um, it wasn't opportunistic, but he was afraid of what society would, what would happen in society if he remained silent. Many people have shouted him down and have moved, or no, people have been shouted down and have, have moved from their own city as a result of such protest. Nevertheless, Peterson stayed the course. Now, this conversation, this debate between left or critical theory um, and moderates, uh, um, and sometimes the right, um, calling for slower social change and public dialogue around these issues is not really a debate that's happening publicly, uh, though I think that Peterson's trying to make it happen more. Sometimes people lose friends over how they think about Peterson, and I know some people who like Peterson, but they're secretly like him. They would never admit it to their leftist friends. However, there are people who are left-leaning who are beginning to privately listen to Peterson um, at home on their computers. Uh, let me just give you a quick little quote that I think And this is a woman who is uh, liberal, and, uh, and this is how she, uh, so this is from the Atlantic, and her name is Caitlin Flanagan. Two years ago, I walked downstairs and saw one of my teenage sons watching a strange YouTube video on television. What is that, I asked. He turned to me earnestly and explained, it's a psychology professor at the University of Toronto talking about Canadian law. <laughs> huh? I said. But he had already turned back to the screen. I figured he had already he finally got into the end of the internet, and this was the very thing last thing on it. That night, my son tried to explain the thing to me, but it was buzzing in my ear, and I wanted to talk about something more interesting. 
It didn't matter. It turned out a number of his friends, all of them like him, progressive Democrats, with the full range of social positions you would expect of adolescents growing up in liberal households in a blue bubble Los Angeles, had watched the video as well and they talked about it with one another. The boys graduated from high school and went off to colleges where they were exposed to the kind of policed discourse that dominates American campuses. They did not make waves, they did not confront the students who were ranging, who were raging about cultural appropriation and violent speech. In fact, they forged close friendships with many of them. They studied and wrote essays and in their dorm rooms on the bus to away games while they were working out, began listening to more and more podcasts and lectures by this man, Jordan Peterson. The young men voted for Hillary and they called home in shock when Trump won. They talked about flipping the house and they followed Peterson to other podcasts, to Sam Harris and Dave Rubin and Joe Rogan. What they were getting from these lectures and discussions, often lengthy and often on arcane subjects, were per was perhaps the only sustained argument against identity politics they had heard in their lives. They, that might seem like a small thing, but it's not. With identity politics off the table, it was possible to talk about all kinds of things, religion, philosophy, history, myth, in a different way. They could have a direct experience with ideas, not one mediated by ideology. All of these young people, without quite realizing it, were joining a huge group of American college students who were pursuing a per parallel curriculum right under the noses of the people who were delivering their official educations. I really like that last line. And it says that they were pursuing a parallel curriculum. Uh, you can see that they were... Um, uh, uh, that they're left-leaning, uh, that they favor policies by Hillary, and yet they're interested because this is the only time that they've heard another voice. And so I believe that Peterson has created the public conversation, even if it's in secret. But you can see millions of people are listening to them, even if people are not admitting it. Yeah. You know? So I think this is very important for the vibrancy of our democracy as we try to take even difficult ideas and issues and discuss them without quickly dividing over them before we have had a thorough discussion about them. I think that's challenging, but true. So my first um, concluding reflection is I'm glad that he's opened the conversation. Two, uh, he rightly called for people to start taking personal responsibility for their lives, which young men have found particularly helpful. We have become a culture where we have sought for our rights instead of our responsibilities. Even those on the left see that Peterson has done enormous good for young men who have felt confused. Now, however, I want to say we must be careful that such personal responsibility does not become solipsism. Um, that is, where young men only become aware and uh, thoughtful about themselves. This would, in fact, cut against Peterson's central point. He calls for people to sort themselves out, but he calls them to do so in taking small steps and becoming responsible for the chaos and the suffering around them. Peterson's call is for the common good, not for selfishness. But with that, though, I do think that there's a fair criticism against Peterson, some fear that with his talk on evolutionary development and tradition, alongside sorting ourselves out before changing the world, so he says, uh, clean your room before, or sort yourselves out before changing the world, something like that. Um, if you have that message alongside evolutionary development and tradition, 
one may never be compelled to control or um, to contend against structural injustice. Peterson does think that all cures comes from individual responsibility. But one may ask, did Martin Luther King only consider himself before taking on the issue of racism? Peterson sees figures like Martin Luther King and Gandhi as very brave and courageous people, but he does not go far enough to explain how we might go beyond just small acts of personal responsibility. Okay, so three. I think that we should pay more attention to Peterson's overall aim. Um, in the 2016 U.S. election, election Mark Leela, a liberal, argued in his book, The Once and Future Liberal, that the Democrats lost the election by playing identity politics and in so doing neglected the farmers and laborers in mid-America whom the Democrats feel that they represent. The election of Donald Trump took everyone or almost everyone by surprise. And here's my primary point in um, paralleling that. Many who did vote for Donald Trump remained quiet about it and did not even trust pollsters or media to reflect their real decision. The truth of how people truly felt showed up in the voting booth. Um, sometimes one can be so focused on being on the right side of history that one ignores where society really is. One is so immersed and convinced by one's own position that he or she does not examine the claims of anyone different. In reading many articles, I saw that several misrepresented Peterson in his views, even making fun of him. And I have known and met several people who have strong opinions about Peterson, who have never read or watched his stuff, um, or have done a sufficient work listening to his stuff. Now, there are some who have read him, um, but many of these articles focused rightly on some of the uncertain claims he has on science, like lobsters, or philosophical categories like postmodern neo-Marxism. However, the writers of these articles fail to focus on Peterson's overall aim and on why many gravitate to him and have been helped by him. Leela and Haidt, both liberals, say that identity politics, which can occur on the left or the right, can blind us not only to our responsibilities, but can also blind us to one another. We are slow to listen and quick to judge. If you are more left and you have survived my lecture to this point, I would encourage you to take more time with what, Peter, what Peterson has said and why he has remained popular, not what has made him popular in the first place, uh, beyond simply th um, thinking beyond identity politics. Interestingly, uh, there was this uh, person right after the McMaster University protest. Um, there was a transgender student that went to go protest Jordan Peterson. I'm getting very close to my end. This is my last point. Um, and I'm going to quote the National Post. This is March 2017, reporting on this transgender person's experience of going to this protest. Tyler Ingalls, 23, from Sarnia, that's Ontario, was one of them protesting. Transitioning from woman to man, he came to protest the University of Toronto professor who has drawn controversy for refusing to use gender-neutral pronouns. That is, he refers to individuals as he or she instead of they. That has drawn fire from the transgender community and Ingalls came ready to do battle, protest sign in hand. I was ready to disapprove of him. 
But pretty much everything he said I agreed with, said Ingalls, who came to London to see him. Everything he said was well thought out. I am female to male transgender. I have spoken to people about him, and people are really against him. I wanted to see what he had to say. I did not want to make any assumptions based on what others say. So I think that was a remarkably gracious way of trying to say what is the other side saying. I'm going to protest, but I'm still going to listen. I think that that's a posture that we should have. And so the fourth and final point is that Christians should take notice of this man who has been able to capture the attention of millions when talking about the Bible for two hours. A Christian has a lot to learn. Peterson's compassion to, for his listeners, where he would visibly cry um, for the crisis that is hitting young men, his depth and breadth of teaching, even when teaching the Bible to include history, science, and culture. Too often, our preaching remains just in this bubble. Uh, Peterson's unsentimental and straightforward teaching is also commendable. He speaks honestly about his own sinfulness or wretchedness um, and about the suffering and evil in the world. He does not try to soften his message to try to make it palatable or popular. He speaks about how hard life is and people know that he's speaking honestly and truthfully. In his bravery to say things that can be very unpopular, fully aware of the consequences, sometimes Christians will soft pedal their words in order to make the gospel more appeasing. And lastly, his ability to integrate what he has to say to all areas of life. Um, his teaching on the Bible may include the greatest reaches, but is always able to bring it back to particular applications in our day-to-day -day lives. And so sometimes preaching can remain abstract and sentimental with never actually reaching home. Uh, and so I feel that these four areas are ways that we can learn. He's opened up the conversation um, and that he's calling people to take personal responsibility, uh, that we should listen to others, and, and that, and that, um, uh, that this man has, this non-Christian man has helped or should confront how Christians should think about how they teach the Bible. Okay, so that's it. Thanks for bearing with me on all that. But, um, <laughs> uh, so let's have a discussion. And it is to after nine, so those who do want to, who have to leave. Okay, sure. Um, I never heard of, uh, of, of him before tonight, um, but from what he, when, it, when I was listening to what he was saying, he matches quite closely where where I've been at in terms of uh, not um, of not of treating people with respect and love as the core values of what you should do, and you don't have to define yourself, have the whole gender, the whole identity thing. To me, it seems very superficial. You don't need to be all in one member of the group. You have you can pick and choose from all these people who say, this is my identity, and this is my identity, and you pick and choose what you want, and then you define yourself by what you believe on each one of those things, and that the whole identity politics is trying to put people into niches, um, and that's not, and people don't fit nice little square boxes all over. They place their, they're very complex, and then and that the whole identity politics is going to, to just go by as a phase. 
Yeah, well, he thinks that maybe it can get worse. And what he and well, he totally agrees with you. I mean, you just said you agree with him. But I would also say that, you know, sometimes people say, what does Peterson have to say? He's just a white man. Therefore, he has nothing that he could say because well, it's just... identity politics. It is identity politics. Rather than listening to him. Yeah, you want to say something along? Yeah. Lindsay Shepard, as I understand, has left Wilfred Laurier because she could not... She said she could not. She was basically ostracized there mm. by by her program, and could not, in essence, learn and get a degree there. Mm. Someone vulnerable like her, I think, the ideolo- the ide- ideology that Peterson was decrying, is at risk in ways that he's a tenured professor isn't the way that most of us in this room aren't. In my mind, that aha video captured what I think is the key, which isn't her ideas and his ideas, but she actually listened to him. Mm. Yeah. She said, I'm reformulating. She yes. listened to listen as opposed to listen to argue. Mm-hmm. And the core issue, I think, shouldn't, I think we get into a trap whether we agree with everything Peterson has said and will say. That's tribal. Yeah. It's like the scientific process. It is are people listening? Are they civil to each other? Are they trying to gain wisdom? And tribal pol- tribal politics, whether it's identity or any other type, isn't trying to go there. It's trying to shut up anyone who isn't me. Mm-hmm. And I think the young men there and, I, and some young women are seeking purpose in their life. Um, when we talk about hierarchy, whether the serotonin of the, of the lobster puts them in the same place as me is a side issue. Christianity actually has a radical message. Christianity says we are all equal because we're all beloved of God. Mm-hmm. And all the rest of the hierarchy in your life is an illusion. Don't fall for it. I don't think we preach that enough. Yeah, I mean, uh, I do think that a lot of churches will try to promote hierarchy <coughs> before promoting... Um, uh, the equality of all people, even people who are outside the church, that we are all equal in the sight of God because we are made in His image, uh, and that we all have fallen short. And so there's those are two great levelers. Um, now, is there any hierarchy that exists? I would contend that yes. Oh, certainly. Just like parents with children, but my child, whom I have a responsibility for, is my hierarchy is not me having absolute power to control my child, but now because I am in a, in a, you might call it a privileged position, actually makes me more responsible because my child is equal to me, but I have a responsibility toward him or my daughter. And so, uh, so I do think that there are hierarchies that exist, but they have to exist with the awareness that we are also equal under God and that our hierarchies are about these roles not about value or status. But sort of hierarchies, I don't think you, there will ever be a position where there's no hierarchies, because hierarchies are based, at least in Canada, where, we, where um, there is less defining of who you are by, where you, who, by who you're born, what families you're born into. It's based on your actions and your choices. And if your actions are hostile to other people, or are or make other people feel angry or does or doesn't produce anything or you're not effective then you're going to be lower on the hierarchy mm-hmm. and that's basics 
and and you can't get around that. And and, and it's, it's not that we were born to be poor. If we were born to be to be aggressive to other people, to not get work done, to 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 not respect other people, and all these things that lower you on the hierarchy as seen by other people. Yeah, um, you know he he says that uh, he you know he talks about lobsters as dominance hierarchies, and but he says that humans organize around hierarchies of competence, and that's what he wants to argue for, and that's why he's against equality of outcome. He thinks that there is injustice in society, yeah. but that we need to cr try to create ways where there's equal um, equality of opportunity. Now, some people disagree that he ultimately really wants that, because you know his affirmation of that the um, um, of uh, wealth inequality. So you know when Joe Rogan and him were talking about, oh, like if someone lives in a suburban house, then they're an oppressor, and he right. goes, well. You know, maybe they've just shown a lot of competence and excellence, and they've been rewarded for their competence. And so he thinks that that's a natural hierarchy. He goes, now if yeah. someone's not given that privilege um, to uh, to rise through competence, then there is an injustice. But he thinks that there's not as many injustices as we, as we think. Uh, you could, you know, reasonably um, argue uh, with him about that because uh, because this one article that says that. Peterson is not for equality of opportunity. And basically it's saying that where you grow up already privileges you in certain ways to like, oh, you, you grow yeah, up with to, money. To me, to that's go. inevitable. If you, if you, if a competent parent, you teach your kids those competencies and reflect on their lives. And you, yeah. then you might also be able to financially support them so they can do what they want. Yes. But, um, but that's because you have been competent. Yes, but uh, this article and, and and Peterson would take that that stance exactly. Yeah. Uh, but someone might say, well, if you're born a poor African American child, and the the land that you were given with affordable housing has high amounts of lead in it, then it's actually going to affect your ability to take tests mm, yeah. and to to go forward. What I would say is that um, Peterson would Pretty say, flat. well, we need to address that. But the way to address it is not just to say everyone gets the same grade, yeah. or to remove the grading system, but, to um, to or, but we need to treat the lead yeah. um, in order that there might be true equality of opportunity. So I do think he's truly for a hierarchy of competence, um, but some people question that on if it's just about personal responsibility and those who have um, are already way ahead. But I, I consider myself a... Um, a feminist, but I have always been against affirmative action. To me, it puts a, um, you're putting, you're trying to promote people who, quote, um, are um, underprivileged or are not doing well because of their background, but you're putting incompetent people in, and it should be, uh, uh, hiring, it should all be at, um, at competency, you know, at the best person for the job, and I know there's biases in terms of people, you tend to hire people who look like you and feel like you. But um, but if you put hardcore measurements in to try to be aware of that and try to work around it, but, but to, to put affirmative action, you're doing, you're doing um, harm to those people who happen to be the white minority, even though they might have been raised by a single mother in a, in a lead-infested area. Yes. I mean, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and that the, the, that's equally as wrong. Hmm. So. Yeah. 
it's interesting. He was being interviewed by Helen Lewis in the GQ, where he was talking about patriarchy, and uh, and he he often says postmodern neo-Marxists um, basically veil veil their disgust and hatred by um, by um, clothing it with the virtue of compassion. He goes, they actually I don't see them as compassionate. They actually hate the rich, or hate anyone that's not them, and uh, this kind of plays itself out with Helen Lewis, where uh, he said. Uh, she said, um, talking about feminism and gender pay gaps and stuff like this, and he said, if you truly love the poor, why don't you leave your job and give it to someone who's poor? And she was just kind of like <laughs> stunned a little bit. He goes, I don't think that you should. You're, I think you probably got this job of your comp because of your competence. And uh, and so and you know and she felt quite uncomfortable about giving up her position. And even Kathy Newman, he goes, you have achieved this place because you're an aggressive, competent woman. And this is why you've gotten this job. And this is why you get lots of money for your job. Um, you know, and so he doesn't see, he sees that she's in that place because of her competence, not because it was affirmative action. And so he thinks that as soon as we start bringing affirmative action, then it actually becomes an injustice to those who are competent. But it is a big debate that at least should be in discussion. Anyone else? Yeah, I think it's interesting um, this idea of personal responsibility and Jordan's Peterson's idea that young white men kind of are really drawn to this this idea, and he talks about like he uses that as a way to explain why he has so many mm. young white men as followers. And sorry, I don't know that gentleman's name in the chair, but he was talking about you know, looking for purpose and that being a pull. And, like, I kind of struggle with how how he kind of, ex how he maybe doesn't explain the disconnect between that and women who perhaps are also drawn to or apparently not as much this idea. Like, is there some sort of gender differentiation there that like personal responsibility appeals less to women that he would no argue? so um, there's a I have an explanation to that and he has an explanation to that okay. uh, I believe that so many young men um, and it's not just white men but just young men in general are, are really like him um, and felt that they've really changed is that uh, there has been so much uh, well he would say that he has primarily a YouTube presence, which is um, which is really a male-dominated domain, whereas Facebook would be more of a female-dominated um, domain. And he said his presence, and he, so he said, I don't know. He goes, I'd be interested to see who bought my book, if if it was comparable. He, so I think that he wishes that he had some kind of data outside of people just looking at. YouTube comments and 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 people like that, uh, and there was lots of articles by women and by people of non-white ethnicities uh, that were writing lots of articles uh, in favor of Peterson. Mm -hmm. So I was surprised to see that it wasn't lots of white white men. Actually, most of the white men were actually reactionary to Peterson, which I found interesting um, from like the Baffler. Vox, Vice, um, the Mick. Um, these are all, um, I think all of them are leftists in origin, and they're mostly white men. And so uh, 
my explanation is that a lot of white men, so, so uh, society is telling uh, other people groups, you can be somebody in society. But white men, you need to be quiet. As soon as you speak up or show some kind of competence, they're going to deem you. Uh, and we've had teachers here who say that there's Women's Day, African American Day, Asian Day, First Nations Day. He goes, well, why isn't there a, a, a guy's day? Like a man, and they were just like, they, every day is their day. Um, but he said, but the students aren't hearing that. And so when you're in a program where you're constantly, and he does say it on the Joe Rogan show, that you are guilty for your existence. And so as soon as someone comes along and saying, look, you're not guilty for your existence, and you can take individual responsibility for your life and make something meaningful. And so people are really responding to him in that way. So I think young men are responding so strongly to him because there hasn't been another voice saying that. Um... And so that's why I think the tie-in to personal responsibility in young men are, um, are, are so big with Peterson. But he believes that in time, because he says, you know, in the psychology department, it is female-dominated. Most of the students that he has had have been female, and they've loved him. The woman who wanted to do a documentary on him was a non-white woman who was really intrigued by his book, Maps of Meaning, and wanted to do a documentary on him, and felt that what he had to say was really important. Um, and so there are other voices outside of this caricaturization, or at least overemphasizing the young men part. Um, but I, but I, I, I think that in time that maybe it will level out. And he says that now as he looks at audiences that he sees it pretty 50-50, 60-40, men and women. And I know lots of women who've gone to hear him speak. Yeah. Not really a question, but more of an observation. It seems kind of, the whole time I'm listening to this, I just kind of keep having the thought, like, it seems like the perfect storm for his gain and sustain of popularity, like, yeah. between the power dynamic shift and mm -hmm. and then the dawn of YouTube and, yes. and all these, uh, yeah, and, like, the young males struggling with this, I think, millennial-induced sort of lack of purpose. Um, and then his tendency, yeah, it's just like, oh, like, he was kind of like that perfect, not perfect, but like ideal candidate to fit this this need that people didn't really know that they had, and then all of a sudden it was there and just took off. But, yeah. yeah, that's helpful, you know, because he, he actually says that um, his whole theory was that YouTube could be used for educational purposes. Yeah. And so he started downloading all his lectures, hundreds right. of hours of his lectures, online before he ever made a, a public statement. Right. Um, and he became popular. So he had all this footage online prior to his fame. Right. Um, and he really wanted to rejig how the education system is done. And in fact, he has an idea that he doesn't want, because he thinks universities are so expensive because it's so top-heavy with bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. And so he thinks that you should make uh, education more affordable and more accessible. And he thinks YouTube is that way. And if you want to be credentialed, then you can pay for the test. And, and even if you fail those tests, you can keep paying and keep taking those tests until you do get credentialed. Um, and so because he thinks that the universities have been kind of lost to ideology, and also because of that, they've become exorbitantly expensive. 
and people are now stuck with big debt. And so he's trying to rejig how education is done, and that was a part of his way of doing it. Well, when he came, when he came out or made his stance, people had access to all his videos. And what had already been happening like with Joe Rogan and other people who were doing interviews is that you see that there is a lot of content. You know, um, I think he said before him it was just cat videos, you know, uh, people looking at cat videos. But, but people are starting to rejig YouTube itself to be a place where people can have independent education. Um, and so whenever you want to find out something, you go to YouTube mm -hmm. uh, and you start finding out a lot. Um, and so I do think that that's another reason why he's, he, he, is a, he, he hit the iron when it was hot, but I think that he also saw, he, he had some foresight on how YouTube could be used. Yeah, yeah it seems like this question of identity is really huge mm. in, in society and, and, you know, people that are attracted to him are, probably searching for their identity as Absolutely. well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's lots of people trying to find meaning and purpose and identity. Mm -hmm. Especially young men who are told that their identity makes them by default guilty for all the problems in the world. And so people really feel ashamed for walking, ar walking around as a white male. And I think that some people try to cover that up or try to dismiss it um, and try to become... Uh, something that is the opposite of hypermasculine, because they they don't want to share in that guilt, and um, and I think what Peterson has offered is saying no, you can be happy and proud that you are a man, you don't have to be embarrassed of that. Um, this this is not all your fault. Mm -hmm. You know there might be sins of the past, and we need to deal with the sins of the past, right. but uh, um, but you need to know that. And they're also uh, a lot of these men might might not also be getting this from their fathers. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so he's filling a gap, maybe. Yeah. If you look at if you look at all um, TV shows ever since Married with Children and The Simpsons came out in the early '80s or uh, late '80s, is that you started having father figures who were grown-up infantile um, infants, you know, adolescents, like Arrested Development and. And others, and so you don't see anybody coming with profound, sincere wisdom. And so I do think that Jordan Peterson represents. Uh, um, they they call him avuncular, which is a new word for me. It means like an uncle. Uh, but, yeah. Two things. I think we have to be careful with words. Identity is different than purpose. It is. Okay, I'm thinking of your comment because you were using identity, and then you shifted purpose and the real discussion was around purpose. Identity tends to be how we're born, sexuality, gender, uh, skin color, whatever. That's well, just like, let me finish you. And perp around purpose, we're really influenced by the states and the lifespan of middle-aged men, white men, is going down in the states. Mm. They're calling them deaths of despair. They're dying of of drugs, alcohol, etc. Same thing happened in Russia. So mm. I think your comments around how do you find purpose and, and the identity politics says if you're a young white man, your basic job is to stand aside and let the rest of the world get their 
proper share. Yes. So your generational thing is just stand aside and I don't care, just go away. And for and feel people, guilty. that's not actually, that doesn't give you purpose. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of identity as how you think about yourself. How you see yourself, how you think about yourself. Identity is used here as how the world tags you. You're using it in a, it, it's, okay. okay? They see you as a white male. Okay, that's a different use of the word. Than, than the culture warriors are using. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, though I saw, I can't remember who it was, but, but both are at play, I think. I think both yeah. are actually at play um, because there's also self-identification. So one, so someone may present white male, but they may identify as something else. Uh, of course, they could be blamed for cultural appropriation or something like that. Um, uh, but this one guy was in an interview on a campus, and he said, uh, what if I want to identify as um, Asian? And they were like, sure. You know, Rachel Dolezal, the whole stuff with that. Um, the woman with the NAACP in Spokane who identified as black even though she was born white, of white parents. And that created some fury. She says, I was not born African-American. She goes, identify, I, I don't identify as African-American, I identify as black. Because she considers blackness a different category. Nevertheless, this guy was like, okay, what if I identify as a female? They're like, yeah, sure, sure you can do that. Um, I think maybe that's how he started, and they were like, yeah, yeah, of course you can. Asian, they're like, yeah, sure, okay, you can do that. He goes, what if I identify as a six-foot Filipino woman? And they were just like, uh, and they were all paused, and they didn't know how to address it, and they were like, they knew the right answer was, of course, but they were coming against something like, how far can we push this? And so identity politics, as Peterson would say, it becomes so fragmented that it actually, it builds us into groups of power, um, or groups competing for resources, um, but at the same time, it fragments us to, um, to a degree of um, insanity. That, uh, that, oh, you don't understand me because um, uh, you may be black and I'm black, but I'm a black woman. Well, this other person's like, well, no, I'm a black woman um, lesbian. And, and it's just like, and that's where they start calling it virtue signaling. Or, uh, or they're trying to trump the other by who has the most marginalized minority. Uh, and so identity can work out where you identify not necessarily what you are labeled, um, what someone else labels you, but both are at play, I think. Um, and it plays into how, it, yeah, go ahead. Um, what are some of the sources, cultural sources in society that tell young white men that they're to blame? And are those outliers, like more just a small group of extreme left sources? Because, I mean, I guess I'm asking because lately I've been in more leftist groups, but I don't hear that message. Yeah, well, um, I can, uh, I, I have uh, a wonderful lecture that I've heard on critical theory, and it points out uh, several resources that are textbooks in, in, um, in academies where these are particularly in gender studies where um, 
uh, or in or in black studies, where there are where there are books where the, that it basically explain patriarchy as the ill of our society. So it doesn't it doesn't specifically say you are guilty because you are a white man. But it talks about the reasons that so many people are oppressed today, uh, uh, sexual minorities or racial minorities, is because of patriarchy, because of, um, or because of uh, white supremacy, or not white supremacy, white privilege. And, and I would say, uh, I, I would need to look for some resources for you. But I would also say that we've had several students come to me and and to cry at me saying, well, how how do you get off having any voice because it's just white privilege, white male privilege? You don't you shouldn't have a voice. You're the reason that um, you're the reason that there are problems. You don't have a voice in this discussion because of your because of your privileged position. And so there's got I, I would have yeah. to imagine there's plenty of resources yeah. because people are coming to me and saying that to me all the time. Yeah, I guess I was just wondering if that's more of a misinterpretation on their part. Well, it's a fairly common one. So it seems like a common misinterpretation is going on. I mean, that doesn't say anything. I mean, people commonly misinterpret Jordan Peterson, as you point out, so... Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um... I mean, I, yeah, I'm not like doubting what you're saying. But it's just, yeah, I am curious about. I will show you. I'll show you. I'll show you some of the resources that I saw, mm -hmm. and um, <clears throat> so, so yeah, and and also, yeah, I'll, I'll show you some of the resources I have. Okay. Did you want to make a further point with that? Are you, no, are you I, saying that? Are you saying or suggesting that that that's not really happening? Um, yeah, my experience, I don't know of, like, other than, like, maybe really extreme outliers of people saying, oh, white guys are the problem of society, like, we all need to blame them, and, yeah. Yeah, me, well, I mean, like they're, caricature. yeah, well, you know, a lot of the, even the articles on Jordan Peterson, and um, the young men that were following him, I mean, they were just vitriolic toward Peterson, and it was talking about white male privilege, continually. Uh, yeah, so... But white privilege doesn't say that white people are to blame, like that they okay. should be guilty, at least how I've understood it, so... So, okay, so how would you interpret, how should someone interpret White privilege, yeah. Uh, I guess the way I've understood it is, um, I can't speak so much for Canada or the U.S., but... Um, and I do think that Canadian, in Canada, there it's, it's much more liberal and progressivist than America is. Sure. Um, there's been a whole history of, um, I guess racial discrimination and so it gets um, like it enters the societal messages and it's in various um, policies as well so like for instance I, th 
think it's Obama may be repealed this when he was still president, but um, crack cocaine and cocaine are essentially the same drug, right? Yeah, and except one has baking soda in it, I think. Yeah, something like that. I don't know the chemical difference, but crack cocaine was used uh, way more in black communities, mm. and cocaine was more used by white communities. But the, uh, the consequences of the punishment for using crack cocaine was a hundred times more severe. Mm. So, like, that's a pretty clear, even if it's not, I don't know who made the rules, if but that, they weren't intentionally saying, oh, let's make this because it's more in the black community, it has the effect of creating a racial uh, disparity. And so you get a lot more black people in the American prisons, and that's mm. a whole other... Yeah, mass uh, incarceration. in America. But that might have a monetary basis because crack, uh, the, the, the crack can be made synthetically for about about one tenth of the price, and so so they could buy it on the street for one tenth of the price. And if you have a community such as the black community that has less money, they uh, they can buy crack. And the reason that why it's charged, the the um, it is more expensive is because it's um, more dangerous for the brain, and more uh, more and more. Um, um, and, and more addictive and stuff like that. So that so there is other bases than just the black white um, black white disparity on crack cocaine issue. Yeah, I mean all I can say is I've heard that crack cocaine and cocaine are essentially the It's same just drug. a couple extra molecules added to the side, which means it absorbs faster, but you can but you can make it in make it at home with cocaine you have to distill from opiates, which means it's a lot more expensive to make. And if you have so yeah. I mean Well that, either way, I you know, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think that there, I mean, there's no doubt that there are racial biases even in, uh, that occur in law and particularly in society. And so you might say that, okay, white people have it easier than African Americans, for instance. I, I would agree with that. But when you use a category of white privilege, um, I think it goes more than just racial bias. Um, I, I think it starts playing an identity politic, where... Um, what is the definition of identi identity politics? Or, yeah, it, well, the way I'm using it is, is to say that people, um, uh, from what I understand uh, from critical theory, is that the individual's ultimate identity is group identity, not an individual identity. Uh, and that, let's say Jordan Peterson is speaking, uh, it doesn't matter what he has to say, that whatever he has to say comes from a position of whiteness and maleness, and he's interpreted as such, rather than interpreting the content of his ideas. Not to say that you're blind to his whiteness or maleness, but that is not a, it's not a de facto category by which to primarily prejudge um, his, on his thoughts or anything. And so identity politics is trying to take an individual and judge it by their category, um, by their group. Okay, yeah, which is, there's lots of problems with that, obviously. Yeah, and so I, I see white privilege as an identity politic category, not, uh, not talking about is racism evident. I'm not, of course, I mean, uh, of course racism is a problem. Absolutely. And there's massive evidence toward that. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Mark Leela was talking about uh, in The Once and Future Liberal, 
he was talking about how Black Lives Matter started as a, a basically um, a larger movement, uh, you know, especially after the Ferguson riots and stuff like that, that there was still a lot of people, like white people, who were in favor of, um, of fighting racism, police brutality, these types of things. But Mark Lita said that Black Lives Matter got to a point saying, no, you cannot speak for us because you're white. Only black people can speak for black people. To me, that moved it into, and, and what Lila would argue is say that, well, that actually moves it um, into a place where you're, you're starting to play, well, he doesn't say this exactly, Haidt would say this, but a common enemy um, ethic rather than a common humanity ethic. Uh, so what you're doing is saying, and he's saying, well, if you don't let white people speak for you, then no one's going to speak for you, like, except yourselves, and that's not going to help the cause. And, and so he was, you know, he's against racism, but someone saying, oh, I don't like Black, black Lives Matter because, um, because it had bought into identity politics or the Me Too movement as well. That started as kind of like an expo exposing of, of uh, male perpetration against women in a variety of ways, but got to a point where it was politicized as identity politics. And so all these movements are actually very important issues that Americans and lots of people, but then it, it starts moving in toward identity politics. And so that's how, when I think about white privilege, and when I've been denounced for, because I wanted to lecture on privilege, and someone was like, well, you know, that's rich as a white male. Like, I'm not going to, you know, not going to go hear that. Because, of course, I couldn't have anything meaningful to say because I'm a white male. Um, by de facto, I could have nothing to say because I spoke from a place of oppression or uh, spoke as an oppressor. And so to me, that's where we get into big problems. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess that helps clarify things because you have a different understanding of white privilege than what like, I've been taught. Mm. Um, there's been lots of anti-racist workshops that my church back home has done, mm. and it's not yeah, I think it's important for churches to have those kind of conversations, and I think that sometimes churches won't talk about racism, and they buy into an identity politic unconsciously, you know, or, or they just abdicate their civic responsibility for the other, for the marginalized. You know, Paul calls people to take care of the orphans, um, the, orphans the widows, um, those, you know, those in your midst in need. Uh, and so, yeah, so Paul was constantly trying to break down the walls that divide us from one another. And, and so he was trying to remove this idea of, let's not play the identity politics game. Actually, let's, you know, and, and he even gets angry at Peter because, you know, Peter was like, oh, the gospel is for everyone. But then he starts eating with the Jews, but not the Gentiles because the Gentiles were the other. And Paul's like, you can't do that. And I think that that's an early case of, you know, quote-unquote, identity politics, where it starts favoring a group against the broad scope of the gospel. So, yeah, I think churches should be talking about this. But when Peterson is talking about the unconscious racial retraining, he's saying, okay, now it's buying into identity politics and now trying to reformulate how I'm supposed to think through identity politics. Not as if this isn't a real problem or if churches, I think churches should speak about this.
talking about unconscious racial training and Sorry, can you uh, just walk through how that buys into identity politics? Yeah, so the people, he was talking about how, I can't remember, it was the Black Liberation Collective or something like that. Um, and he was talking about the two women who, um, who basically were pushing human resources at the University of Toronto toward, um, uh, uh, toward unconscious racial bias retraining. I would have to go back on exactly what he said. Oh yeah, the melanin that transforms yes. cosmic power into wisdom. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so uh, and he said that this woman is a black supremacist, uh, and that um, she's putting out, you know, saying, oh, you know, there there's racism at the school. Well, who defines racism? Well, the minority group. Uh, and so. Um, and so Peterson felt that human resources were being pushed in this retraining of their minds or re-educated on how to think about race. Because it was saying, well, how you think about race is wrong. And you need to be retrained toward, uh, toward thinking you know, in these racial, um, or these categories in these racial ways. And I think that that plays into identity politics. Let me say that in the conversation about patriarchy, uh, we forget that under matriarchies, it's still the man who's the head of the clan, but it's the it's the uncle who's the head of the clan. Hmm. So that's often forgotten hmm. in in the conversation that uh, that the the uh, name of, of the system identifies where the name of the tribe comes through doesn't identify who runs the tribe. Uh-huh. Yeah. So in a patriarchy, the name runs through the man. In a matriarchy, it runs through the woman. But uh, it's still, it's the uncle in the matriarchy who runs the system. So that, that's usually forgotten in the conversation. Yeah, it's really good, and that's helpful. I mean, it's, you know, when uh, Peterson was talking about patriarchy with Helen Lewis of GQ, you know, he was saying, how do you define patriarchy? And, and then he had to define patriarchy. And I think that because these conversations haven't been happening across the aisle, as it were, that, um, that we're having difficulty even having conversations because everyone has a different definition for these things. Well, of course, um, my definitions come from 60 years ago, so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because someone, if, if you so. say patriarchy, it is, uh, as Helen Lewis would say, well, it's, it's automatically speaking about an oppressive history, where Peterson says, I don't interpret it as an oppressive history because they see it as a different thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, but we, we need to have more conversations about discussing vocabulary, and I think that's helpful, yeah? Thank you. So, switching tracks, um, Peterson... If anyone needs to leave, they can. I think you know that. Yeah. Peterson says that the Bible gives archetypal teaching for um, evolutionary truths. Yeah. Is... That's how I put it. Okay, right. So is he essentially um, just like kind of a neo evolutionary psychologist then? Well, he approaches evolutionary 
biology uh, through a psychological lens, from what I can tell. He's always interested in what does it say about our development as human being, as conscious human beings, and how does that play into uh, an understanding of our psyches. So um, he does. He looks at evolutionary science uh, in in biologies and evolutionary psychology, which I don't know how those fields are exactly different. Uh, if I if I don't misunderstand I think it's moral psychology uh, where it's trying to understand how did we develop in believing certain truths or believing certain things uh, and how did these ideas basically equip us to survive and thrive um, how do we go from trying to seek out an existence in order to become a collective and how did we start formulating the um, those ideas and so it's it's a it's a classic theory of how religion has developed through time is you know uh, basically through through human need, um, human longing, and that religion has has come about through evolutionary processes that we now depends on who you are that we can abandon or we can receive. So when he looks at evolution, he sees that evolution has brought forth religious truth or how we conceive. Um, and I think that he particularly sees it, though he doesn't say this specifically from what I haven't found him saying it, but just deducing, is that he sees that as soon as we became conscious, we started trying to tell stories to understand ourselves. Prior to that, we were just living. And as soon as we started trying to tell stories about ourselves, then we were looking for meaning systems. And, um, and he follows Carl Jung's idea that uh, we... Uh, Basically, what we were doing is that we were acting out, you know, um, me go out, club, bear, and me talk about bear. And <laughs> I don't know if ancient people talk this way, but, you know, just this idea of very limited vocabulary. And they're acting it out, but, they're, but then their grunts become more articulate and more advanced to describe more concepts. And what they see is that there's actually a theme. Every time you go out to fight a bear and you come back with this victory, the stories start sounding the same. And, and so much so that over time you start having uh, stories that kind of uh, encapsulate or codify certain archetypes. Uh, the, the sun god or, or the elderly wise man or the um, protective mother, or something like that. And he thinks that that is the source of the stories that we find in the Bible. It doesn't seem like it's necessary. If it is telling stories after we gain consciousness, uh, it doesn't seem like that necessarily reveals evolutionary truths then because I guess I'm asking because mm. um, I'm curious if you is ultimately just a reductionist reducing everything down to evolutionary thinking like all of our complex beliefs about meaning about life philosophy like that we've developed now um, in which case I kind of I would 
would disagree with him if he tries to reduce it down ultimately to evolutionary truths influencing the way. He says that it played a part because I said that the, um, I think he sees them as mutually informing because, um, because there's the great mystery. How did consciousness come about? I mean, that is, that is a very problematic and very intense debate among materialists, particularly strict materialists. What is consciousness and how did it evolve? Um, how, and, <clears throat> and so Peterson says, you know, that's a mystery. But once we became conscious, like we can see even now that consciousness, like if you're not a strict materialist, that if you're a materialist that has room for mind and cosmos, uh, that the mind plays a role in how we've evolved. And so it's not that we're just going by kind of biological determinism, but that our conscious drives are actually shaping even perhaps our biological drives or even shaping how we think about the world and how we structure the world. And who knows, maybe how we go into the future. Someone like um, Yuval Harari would say that, um, I think would basically agree with that, with transhumanism, where how, how we might transform ourselves into like a new species, um, more of a cyborg or downloading our consciousness. But, and so consciousness, what my, my point is, is that consciousness can play a role in how we've evolved, as well as our evolution has developed how we think or how we perceive ourselves and that they're mutually informing. And that Peterson, uh, he would say that you cannot reduce consciousness just to evolution or religious truth just to evolution um, because you can't reduce consciousness to just the material or the biological. There's something else going on. And so he says that there are facts. Like he goes, if you want to look into DNA and, gen and gen genes and stuff like that, you can go really way far back, you know, carbon dating and all that. He goes, that's one way of looking at history. He goes, but there is also an equal history of, um, of basically the, the history of conscious or religious truth or um, the truth of values. That values, um, and what he says, or most importantly, he says ideas. Like he's almost platonic in the sense that he sees ideas as like one of the top, top form um, that, that people can do. And so he sees that these are side by side. They're mutually informing. Um, they're not mutually exclusive, but they're not the same thing. And so, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't try to reduce religious truth to evolutionary development, but he thinks evolutionary development has explained a lot about how we might think about religious truth. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then it might be better to say instead of the Bible gives archetypal teaching for evolutionary truths, it gives archetypal teaching which or conferred by evolutionary development. Conferred. Oh, what I meant, um, conferred might be the wrong word. I mean, um, kind of correspond with. Okay. Right. Because I think he sees religious truth as an interpretive method of something that is non that's non-interpretive. So, um, so he sees that when we look at our ability, like maybe our our, our first ability to. Uh, to recognize that we were doing something, then it ends up we end up interpreting the thing that we were doing. But prior to that, we were just doing it. Um, and so religious truth is interpreting 
what's actually happening in our evolutionary development biologically. Though it's not exactly the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I find, uh, I feel that he tries to reduce everything. I, I go back and forth. I think he's a very dualistic thinker between uh, consciousness and the material world. And so when he talks about individual personal responsibility, uh, he basically, um, and he's like a classic existentialist in this way, and he sees himself as that. I've, I've seen him quote, I find it. But that the world is absurd, that is something that you battle, you know, like the myth of Sisyphus where the, the, the Sisyphus was condemned by the gods to roll the stone up the hill and it comes back down and he's in hell most of his life, but then there's little bright moments and then it rolls back down, kind of like what the author of Ecclesiastes would say. Uh, well, this is really much Peterson's worldview of saying you have to contend against the, the suffering in the world. And, and so the existential would say, one of the things I would say is... Your way of being is not only are you condemned to be, but you have a choice. What is, what is the act of meaning? Choosing to roll the hill, I mean to roll the stone, um, to push the stone. Even though life is suffering, you don't know how to make sense of it. Um, and so for Peterson, he goes, uh, just try to contend with suffering because that might atone for your sinful existence. Uh, and I do believe that he becomes reductionistic in that way where he sees evolutionary biology alongside consciousness contending with a biology that may not really care about us. Um, so yeah, I, I think he's reductionistic. But, I mean, I applaud him for having an integrated system, like trying to look at the Bible, look at science, look at psychology, look at politics, and look at practical wisdom and try to tie them all together. And that's his project. Uh, and I think a lot of people find it very convincing. I concur with that. That's really, in a nutshell, how I, what I really enjoy about Peterson. Um, mm. A couple of things that are so classic Peterson, that they're quite simplistic, but Spiff spoken to me on how he views uh, and combines um, science and, and religion in I've heard him talk about God and that we are made in the image of God in that we are trying to bring good into being yeah and that's a very I find that's very Peterson as he's combining well he would not quite say bringing good into existence he would say removing bad from existence is probably more precisely because he, he has a hard time defining what is good um, but he would he would say I know what is bad. Yeah, I've written down uh, a little quote that I found quite funny. I'm just going to read it out. There's an idea that hell is a bottomless pit, and the reason for that is that there is no situation that is so terrible that there isn't some damnful thing that some idiot can do that will make it far worse. And it's reasonably probable that you're that idiot. <laughs> <laughs> or he's capable of being the aforesaid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. funny. He, he he loves to have these jokes, but he but yeah. he doesn't laugh. No. He says them. He means them, but you know other people laugh when he says yeah, them. Yeah, he takes it this very seriously, and I, I applaud him for his. Uh, 
what I believe to be genuine concern for our potential for recreating the nightmare of the past. Yes. That rather than you know the fun movie of Back to the Future, that what we may actually be doing is uh, going forward to the past. Yes. Very quickly, and we're he is trying to awaken some consciousness of that and looking at all of these dynamics that are at play and always have been whether we're having a conversation about them or not we're having more of a conversation now because of the platforms in which we can and he is really I see him as like this vernacular like you said this uncle figure like a tribal elder um, speaking to the uninitiated mm. as an attempt to initiate people before it's too late you know like to initiate us to wake to wake up demographics to the potential that we have to recreate a, a disaster you know and he likes to go down the route of uh, national socialism and the Gulag Archipelago is something that he likes to refer to yes. uh, which um, you know as to these great catastrophes of ideology of the past and and how we it's we need to sober up and and have this conversation and these other sideshow uh, gender appropriation issues are a great incendiary place to illuminate the fact that we do need to have a conversation about very difficult, complicated, fundamental, reintegrated issues that we need to Yeah, that's so very difficult for us to grapple with. And I'm yeah. thankful that he is out there giving people an opportunity to have a conversation that haven't maybe had a voice and when it comes to the white privileged white yeah, his yeah. main following I mean you know as an initiator he was a white young white male wasn't he at one point yes he is a transcended young white maleism to become a you know like an mm. elder figure who's offering some mm. some salve some relief against this atheistic backdrop of people's despair, mm. um, going back to this bottomless pit of hell mm -hmm. that he describes, and that the only way out of that is for you to face that you're the person that's potentially going to bring about disaster in the world again if you don't become conscious of it. Yeah, I think that's really helpful because, one, because that is his own story. Because he was in despair, uh, particularly over the Cold War, and so he became a socialist. Uh, but then really um, became very disappointed by it because he felt that everyone was talking about how um, they had all this compassion for the poor. But he saw, but the more, the longer he stayed in it, he just felt that everyone just had resentment toward others. And, and then he saw that, no, I mean, it's not like we have escaped any, you know, we, we can easily become bad people. And so he would look at the um, uh, uh, Gulag Archipelago and, and also Ordinary People that he was talking about by Robert Browning uh, and the Nazis and whatnot, and just how um, 
how easily we can fall in line with these things slowly, you know, drip by drip and not know that we have come into it. He, uh, one, one second. He said that um, he has a self-authoring suite. And it's, a, it's to help, it's, a, it's like a program that someone can buy online, like fourteen ninety five or something like that. And, it, and basically it helps them write their autobiography of trying to deal with their past, deal with their present, deal with their future. And he says that in the past there's always these kind of traumas um, that happen. And if we're always thinking about them, and, we, and he goes, then we haven't got over them. The past is supposed to serve us to be able to, to function in the present and then toward the future. Uh, and he says, you know, we, we shouldn't ever forget these things or oppress them. And I think that he sees that as a cultural thing and saying, you know, look, I, I was quite simple, sympathetic to socialism, but then realized that actually it can create gulags and concentration camps. And so we need to be very careful about where these philosophies lead. And so, and he does say that, you know, the, the, the you know, preferred pronouns, he goes, the issue is not that. It's the philosophy behind it that's really pushing it. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, he was even talking about how he felt bad for tran like actually transgender people who were, going who were getting basically used for trans activist purposes, because he's quite sympathetic and, uh, to people who um, identify as trans. Um, but yeah, that we can't forget the past because the past isn't through with us, right? You I did read, I did hear one of his YouTube, and by the way, with a prophet in the modern age, what else would he use? What else would he or she use on YouTube, right? Yeah. yeah <laughs> but there's point. no court of the king. Mm -hmm. um, he said that, and maybe this goes to his history on the socialist side, that conservatives had come to terms with the evil of Nazism, etc. In other words, they had said this is a line beyond which we do not go and we have to mm. be careful and that the left had never come to terms with the evil of the Gulag, Pol uh, mm. Pot in Cambodia, and some of what happened in China. And mm. so maybe his anger and aggression around some of this stuff comes that he sees this is work that the left hasn't done, mm. coming to terms with where are the boundaries. Mm. That's very helpful. Okay, well, we'll end there. Thank you. Thank you. Good night.